All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan. Three weeks ago, I was a guest on Ken Drew's show, Taboo Topic. We discussed a variety of issues and we've got that compiled here for you. We dove into cancel culture, Whoopi Goldberg's remarks on the Holocaust, claims of racism from the NFL Dolphins' former head coach, Florida's proposed 15-week restrictions on abortion, and the trucker protests of the vax mandates and COVID restrictions in Canada. We've got all that and more coming up. Welcome to Taboo Topic. I'm your host, Ken Drew, and I am joined now for a third time ever from Between the Liars, Ryan Gook. How are you, my friend? I am doing great, Ken. How are you? I am living the dream. I'm living the dream. <laughs> I just turned 26 today. So. <laughs> oh, well, happy birthday. You didn't tell me that. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. That's not something I advertise, but um, for my audience now, it's advertised for you guys. So you can reach out to me. <laughs> Wish me a happy <laughs> birthday if you want. I'm not someone that like likes the attention necessarily, but I definitely appreciate the recognition, if that makes sense. Sure. What you been up to? How did the show go, by the way, for the last one that I participated in? You know, we had a really great guest. Uh, <laughs> he did a great <laughs> job. Uh, no, it went, it went well. It went well. And now we're uh, gearing up for another guest this weekend so actually i think uh your the one you were on uh, has actually been uh, a higher listenership for us so kudos to you and crossovers work <laughs> yes yes they do what's it, what's gonna be this week's topic uh so this week we're actually having um a guy on who serves as the like local gop chairman and so we're going to get some of his perspectives on what's it like working in local politics because you know I like to talk a lot about how local politics is where it's at if you want to actually see tangible change that makes progress. And so we're going to just do more of an interview uh, and look at some of the general concepts. So uh, that'll, that'll be an interesting and unique one that we'll record on Saturday, and you can catch that podcast dropped on Monday. That actually sounds really interesting, especially given the new wave of interest in local politics. I definitely have to check that out. Um, it's good to hear, though, too, that the one I was just happy to be in last week did pretty well for you. So you're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. No problem. But anyway, so do you remember how this goes? I give a general synopsis, and then um, we give our initial reaction and just kind of talk and have a conversation about you remember that yep yep sounds good all right well with that said for this one i'm actually going to go ahead and let you take the lead we're going to talk about cancel culture <laughs> so we both have a story that intertwines with cancel culture so i want you to go ahead and take lead for your story okay perfect so mine oh boy where do we start uh so Potentially, you've heard about uh, Whoopi Goldberg being suspended from The View for two weeks over some of the comments that she had made on The View regarding the Holocaust. Uh, were you up to speed with that, Ken? Yes. As of today, I actually am. I will listen to the Megyn Kelly show, and they talked a lot about it today. 
Yeah. So I've got a, I got a few quotes here to kind of to set the stage. So they were talking about the Holocaust, and she said, "Let's be truthful about it because the Holocaust isn't about race; it's about man's inhumanity to man." And then uh, she went on to say that basically these were two white groups of people. The minute you turn it into race, it goes down this alley. Let's talk about it for what it is. It's how people treat each other. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or Jews. It's each other. And, and so one of her co-hosts actually did point out, she was like, oh, you know, <laughs> uh, Hitler definitely did make it about race. You know, it's about white supremacists going after the Jewish people. Right. And so she, understandably so, received a lot of backlash on her social medias and then uh, i think it's what abc that hosts the view they said that this doesn't you know this is yes. not a representation of us so she's going to take her two weeks um of suspension and it's really interesting to me because this this is a bit of foreshadowing about and i'd really like to clash on the differences between uh, her and say the attempted deplatform for deplatforming of joe rogan on spotify because it, it ties into like you'd mentioned cancel culture there's there's a number of issues that I see with this statement, aside from being historically and factually inaccurate. You know, Whoopi also went on to say that race is something where, like, you, you essentially need to see a physical difference. So, like, which what? is, yeah, yeah, she literally said, uh, she went on to say, like, you know, if a white supremacist is coming down the street and, you know, she's black, if, say, you're Jewish or Asian, and you're, it's not quite as noticeable, then, like, you'll be fine. Like it's just an absurd statement that like basically you have to see like physical components of race for it to become an issue. And like just the fundamental idea here is that Jews are white people, which is actually <laughs> incorrect. Like if, if you're saying it's about two white groups of people, that is so incorrect. But she's really basing it off of it. She quotes the the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, and this ties to a story we'll get into later. But Basically, the, the definition that the ADL put out is the marginalization and or oppression of people of color based on socially constructed racial hierarchy that privileges white people. And that's why she's able to say from that quote unquote real definition that they recently changed that by that definition, Jewish people, Asian people are not white people. She didn't say that, but that's the implication here because they've quote unquote benefited from the white systems or it's not quite as physically noticeable or they hold more levers of power. Like it's insane to me that like she, she's not being called out for as racist as that statement was like factually incorrect. Absolutely. But the undertones here are that it's it's so racist because it literally harkens back to what Hitler was saying. These people are not like us. And, and it just blew my mind that she would say that. I, and she apologized, and that's great, but still. It's very interesting to see how the application or the standard for cancer culture changes on the left anyway. As soon as if it's someone on their side saying these statements and they get backlash. It's, I don't think it's not nearly as harsh than, say, let's say someone like, oh, I don't know, Joe Rogan. Imagine if Joe Rogan said those things. Um, Spotify would probably drop him as of right now, which we'll get into Joe Rogan in just a second. But I think it's very interesting, the double standard as well, when it comes to um, the left standard of cancel culture in particular. And it's not so much of what opinions you are as much as like whose side do you claim to be on. And you claim to be on the right side, if you will, then 
the consequences afterwards is not as severe, such as a two-week suspension versus just dropping her altogether. I will say that, and this is where, this is what I hate about cancel culture, all right? Because in the end, it becomes an idiot rush fire. And this is what I mean by an idiot rush fire, all right? So we start off with Whoopi Kushner, right? We start off with her saying idiotic things, basically, right? Out of the left field, out of the blue. But then you have people like myself who have the need to defend her, which then in turn also makes me look stupid and look like an idiot as well. Because the people in the cancel culture in particular have been so idiotic for like the last few years that now we're all in this com- we're in this huge bumble of an idiot rush fire, basically. And unfortunately, that's where we're at with cancel culture, because I don't really agree necessarily with the two-week suspension. I think they should have let her apologize and at least have a discussion afterwards. I think that would have been more genuine than just giving this two-week suspension, which is like a slap on the wrist and everything like that. Make her face the audience and address the manner and... Unfortunately, that's not the direction ABC went. It's just like a slap on the wrist. But well, it it is important to note she did come out and she did address them. She she actually did it twice. She did it on the show. Um, I don't remember if it was the next day or but but it was the same week. And then she went on Stephen Colbert and talked about it a little bit. But that's kind of where a little bit of her explanation got off the rails because it started off, you know, this was wrong. I stand with the Jewish community, blah, blah, blah. But then she then kind of went into the ideas of, you know, race, you know, she's like, I, this is how I thought of racism. And it's like, well, (laughs) you're kind of digging yourself a hole here. Like you should have cut it off at, I'm sorry, this was wrong. We needed to talk about this. Right, and not only that, but it kind of feeds into this notion that the left has kind of created of it's not racist if it's against white people, right? And unfortunately, that's where we're at. And if anyone who's not a person of color, per se, um, like black or Hispanic in particular, uh, it's not race. It's only racist when it's done to them. But if it's like any other group, like an Asian or white person in particular or Jewish whatnot, then that becomes, then it's no longer a racial issue, which I think is quite absurd. And really just the whole double standard in general just drives my mind insane, which at this point, I have to say we live in an insane world. (laughs) I don't think we live in a sane world, which kind of leads into my story uh, with cancel culture as far as Spotify and Joe Rogan versus cancel culture. And the reason why I say that is because so far Spotify has sided with Joe Rogan. Uh, this feeds back into this, which also kind of feeds back into the panic COVID porn we've seen the last couple of years from the media. This is not necessarily a new controversy as far as Joe Rogan and Spotify and cancer culture going after them, but just more so reinvigorated controversy over Joe Rogan being on Spotify as he's been labeled a right wing conspiracy theorist enabling dangerous misinformation. Uh, This has been new cause for boycott to drop Joe Rogan from Spotify after two interviews with two renowned doctors, including Dr. Malone, who was a player and created the RNA vaccines in the late 90s and 2000s. Um, These interviews went against the narrative that if you 
that you need to hide in your bunker with this virus and that you sh everyone should get the vaccine. This pissed off their employees, but the executives of Spotify said Joe Rogan hasn't met that threshold to where he needed to be dropped on Spotify. With that said, it is important to note that I'm pretty sure there's some monetary incentives that Spotify has invested over $100 million towards the Joe Rogan experience. And also, Joe Rogan in that show is a major contributor for bringing in new subscribers or customers in capitalist terms. Uh, we've had artists like Neil Young who pulled his music out of Spotify to protest uh, allowing Joe Rogan on Spotify's platform, which again, Spotify sided with Joe Rogan and told Neil Young, like, all right, you want to pull your music out? Go ahead. It's not our problem. Uh, the only thing Spotify has done is some sort of middle ground to put out the content and rules of rules and also COVID information. Joe Rogan himself also responded on Instagram, clarifying he was just talks to people. They doesn't have an agenda of any sort, but it's just in pursuit of truth. Um, which good for Spotify for not bending over to a small crowd. I include CNN, which now garners less than a million views on prime time versus Joe Rogan. That's in the millions. That's how irrelevant CNN has become, which I don't know about you, but I like to think of CNN as the clown news network at this point. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and this kind of makes me, he's, I mean, Joe Rogan is the king of podcasts, even before he was on Spotify. So it makes sense why Spotify would not side with cancel culture on this. But I also think about the story uh, that I listened to last week because I went to see Fluffy. Do you know Fluffy, the comedian? Uh, you mean Gabriel Iglesias? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I actually went to see him live last Friday, and he talked about cancer culture. He spoke how uh, – he first went – he talked about how they went after Speedy Gonzalez, for example, because, you know, of the Mexican – Well, when you say they, you need to specify that it was – White, liber no, well, white liberal women. It was not the Hispanic community. The Hispanic <laughs> right. community is the yes. reason that they didn't go through with it because they were like, I, we love this character. It is not offensive to us. Like, stop being offended on behalf of us. Yes. And Fluffy even brought that conversation up because apparently the movies from Space Jams asked him, like, are you offended by Speedy Gonzalez? And in which he responded was, along the lines of what you said, like he grew up, like he actually liked and appreciated Speedy Gonzalez because he felt that was like the only representation of the Hispanic culture on that show, on, on Looney Tunes in particular. So um, he went on to say, though, during those conversations, because he also brought up like Kevin Hart, for example, and how he got canceled over some tweets like 10 years ago, I guess at LGBTQ and why he got dropped from the Grammys and how he didn't apologize. He went on to say that um, telling all of the audience members anyway that night was that we cannot apologize to cancer culture and then which the more we do the more power we give to this small percentage of the population which I don't know about you and how involved you are with the Joe Rogan experience but I like it and I think he's a much more reliable source of information and truth than all the other news networks combined and that's because he's independent he talks to everyone from Miley Cyrus to Alex Jones in a sane world, he did what many would consider to him to be a liberal, all right? Not a right-wing yes. conspiracy theorist, but in Correct. a sane world, he would be considered a liberal. But He's not conservative. He, he is not. Not at all. But 
unfortunately, we live in an insane world where right is wrong, wrong is right, lie is the truth, the truth is the lie, and dangerous, blah, blah, blah. Cancel culture just wears me out, man. Let's just keep it real. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and here's what's really interesting to me about cancel culture is how many people that I know who are leaning towards the left who say that cancel culture doesn't exist. And and this is how they arrive at this conclusion. There's There's two things that they put out as their evidence for it doesn't exist. So number one, if you get picked up somewhere else, you weren't canceled. So think about how Gina Carano was cut from uh, Disney's payroll. Gina Carano was right. in The Mandalorian and based off of some of her tweets, which I'll get in, I mean, I could get into that as a whole other deal, but the short version here is she was let go for some of those tweets and then she was picked up by the Daily Wire for a different show. So that means that their evidence there is she wasn't canceled she was picked up somewhere else. The second thing they put out here is that being fired or whatever you're, con- it's just a consequence. So they say that, you know, if you don't make as much money or like, you know, you lose your job, it's a consequence of something you said, whether it be racist, sexist, blah, blah, blah. The problem that I have with this is it's really just a game of semantics and they dance around the fact that it wasn't people removing their support. So, for example, recently someone's been saying, well, when people in one community burned all of their Nike gear in protest, like this is the same thing. And the difference that I have to make there is that we didn't go to Nike and pressure Nike to cut their deals with certain sponsorships. We just, Correct. you know, if, if we, whoever was involved, I was, I didn't, I'm a broke ass college kid. I didn't burn any of my <laughs> stuff. I didn't, you know, like in my opinion, if you did that, it was a waste, but it was your personal decision with your personal belongings. I don't think it did anything, right? So, but but the bottom line here is those people made their own decisions and they boycotted it. The difference here, whether it be uh, Dave Chappelle and Netflix or whether it be Joe Rogan and the Joe Rogan experience on Spotify, they don't not listen to this thing. They say X thing is so detrimental to society. It is so harmful to our culture that it can't even be out there. It can't exist. So they go and they pressure the people who own the platforms. And here's the important line here. Does Spotify have the right to terminate Joe Rogan? Sure. And that's fine. Per, uh, personal opinion, it'd be a terrible business decision given that there's 11 million listeners for every episode. Right. But but at the end of the day, they could. But, but that is not that you're, you're dancing around that issue when you present these arguments that way then because the bottom line is people are going to the source and pressuring them. They pressure Disney to not have Gina Carano on anything. It wasn't that they didn't watch The Mandalorian. It's not that they didn't support Disney and X, Y, or Z film that they put out. They said, no, 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 she cannot have a job. They say, no, 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 Joe Rogan cannot have a platform. No, 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 Dave Chappelle cannot have a, a, a special on Netflix. So this is why I say cancel culture exists and you know i'm sorry i've had to drag us around on this train of whether or not it exists but like this is where people just brush it off like it doesn't exist and that's how they get there which it blows my mind that's where we're at and yeah and i would say also too it's out for going back to the view of whoopi kushner for example like i don't believe she should be canceled for what happened to her either i would do want to clarify that because i think whoopi goldberg (laughs) i think whoopi goldberg my bad sorry (laughs) that's all right that's all right just (laughs) appreciate the correction there but i don't think even though she said some terrible things and i think there ought to be consequences as far as you know people she deserves the backlash and everything like that but i think in a free society, how you would actually give that person a piece of your mind if it was not 
necessarily demanding their cancellation, but just tuning them out, right? So if you don't, if you listen to her and you see her still being on that show, for example, which ABC also has the right to decide whether or not they want to keep her on the show or not, right? Yep. Yep. But if that bothers you so much, just change the channel. Turn. Let's go to a different show. Like that's honestly the solution to some of these people as far as if they say something like so outlandish as she did, and you want to hold them accountable, hit them where it hurts the most. Viewerships equals money. So the less viewers they have, that's less money, which means that's going to eventually affect your salary in the yep. future. I mean, cancel culture doesn't really have – it doesn't have to exist. People think that people – the way to hold people accountable is by demanding them to deplatform them and you know, get them fired from their job. But in reality, especially in the entertainment world, we have the consumer. We consumers have so much power as far as what we decide, what gets fed into our minds, whether it's through our eyes or put we put into our ears as well with podcasts or music, for example, right? Yep. Like it doesn't. Some of this stuff doesn't have to be mainstream. Like we don't actually have to put up with this stuff. As a matter of fact, I'm not even saying I don't believe in accountability for what what's going on for some and with some of the stuff that people say. I just don't think demanding someone to be deplatformed or firing them from their job is the way to go about it. Right. And and I think what's important here is on a principled level, I think you and I are on the same page, kind of that classical liberalism, which is I may disagree with this, but it deserves to still be out there because the moment that I swing that sword, it's a double-edged sword. If I can cut you off for whatever reason I justify, when you get the power, you can do that as well. and. This is where, on a principle level, I agree, but on a practical application level, I'm beginning to be very much of the opinion that we we really need to be canceling everyone and be consistent. So either everyone gets deplatformed or nobody gets deplatformed, because right now, cancel culture is being weaponized by the left in order to remove the people that they disagree with, but then they say, oh yeah, for Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, she she deserves to have her platform. <laughs> and so this it becomes it's no longer a standard, it's a double standard. Right. Part and, of the, you know. <laughs> part of the problem is though too with her is she claims to be a liberal, which that by itself is already kind of gives her a pass. And she's black. No offense, but she's a black liberal, so that she's kinda of in that protected class. When which you check the boxes, you can get away with a lot more. And that's the problem here, is it's no longer a universal standard. So while I I will say this here and I will say it for forever. My standard that I believe in is the classical liberal. If you don't like it, don't support it. Don't put your money there. Don't watch it. Whatever pulling that support looks like, you make that decision. But you allow the speech to exist because the purpose of free speech in our society, it's not to protect the popular speech because popular speech doesn't need to be protected. It is unpopular speech. It is speech that is at times factually incorrect. And when you try to bury it, you raise more questions. Like literally you have undercut your purpose because if they want to shut down Joe Rogan for quote unquote misinformation, and I, you know, just as a side note there, he's exactly correct when he says people are using misinformation as a very loose term these days. They don't provide evidence. They just throw it out there. But when you right. when you shut down quote unquote misinformation, you you wind up basically being able to justify whatever you want. Because if Whoopi Goldberg were a conservative and she had said this, here is what would have been said about her. She needs to be removed and deplatformed because this speech 
and harmful and jeopardizes the Jewish individuals. And it leads to phobias against them, which leads to uh, hate crimes. Let's say the rise of white supremacy, yada, 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 so on and so forth. Therefore, we justify her deplatforming. Same for Joe Rogan. We see that he gets to be deplatformed because misinformation is dangerous and it's damaging. So you can always find a way. I said this when you were on my show. You can always find a way to justify your actions. And you can especially do that if the left right now is not actually having to provide a standard or be consistent with that. And so do you believe then that basically until we start giving them a taste of their own medicine, there's, that's the way to go about it? It sounds like that's kind of the direction you're going in right now, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yes, I, I, as, a, as a principle, that should not be the case. But I think that the best case in this situation, start a cold war. Mutually assured destruction. We're just going to keep deplatforming people until we stop with this <laughs> crazy selectiveness. Because here's the deal: she's she goes on with the suspension, which I again will say it was the right of ABC to do that uh, because you know you're not guaranteed to work for an employer, especially when things you say don't ally, align with them. But if we're going to start deplatforming people based off of the the quote-unquote principle of it's damaging, it's dangerous, it threatens our culture, it threatens people's existence, then you apply that standard across the board. And we need to start doing that until they the cancel culture stops going after people because they realize, it's a, in the words of Nick Fury, it's a stupid-ass decision. You don't do it. I mean, I could definitely... Uh, I definitely respect your opinion, and I think you're absolutely... I mean, it's a little this, more radical than usual. <laughs> Usually, I'm pretty yes. center. <laughs> yes, it's definitely a lot more uh, right wing. <laughs> well, not necessarily right wing, but just definitely more on the authoritarian, I guess. But to be fair, it is steer justified. into the skin. <laughs> yeah, it is justified though because you're right. Like in order, I think in order for them to finally get the message across that cancel culture is real, then they have to start getting a taste of their own medicine as well. And at which point, until that starts happening on the left at the same proportion that's happening to people who claim to be conservative, for example, it's probably not going to register with them that cancel culture is real. But yep. And I'm, uh, I'm literally only in favor of this as a curb against the cancel culture. Like, and I, I cannot say this enough. I do not think these people should be platformed, period. I think that the answer to hate speech, the answer to misinformation is more speech, more information, not the silencing of it because it puts the hands in the power or the power in the hands of the government. It puts the power. And we've seen this because the White House is coming out and we'll see how this goes, but there's potentially some First Amendment violations going on here when Jen Psaki, who speaks for the White House, who speaks for the President of the United States, the leader of the free world, and says, yeah, they could be doing more. Disclaimers on his show are not enough, like Spotify needs to come out. So, Oh yeah, that's see, right. If we see the White House, a federal organization, or a federal entity within the, the organization, if you want to call the United States an organization, <laughs> operationalizing to silence free speech that is a huge concern and i mean you know, it would I play just, into <laughs> donald trump's uh, lawsuit though too against big tech yeah. well it astounds me the number of people who are like donald trump's an authoritarian he's gonna do this and, and then they're cheering on biden's white house as they do this i'm like okay think for two seconds if donald trump said this would you be in fear for your life? Because I'm in fear for my life regardless of who says it because I think it's an attack <laughs> on free speech and that bothers me. But I am not applying an inconsistent standard. I mean, as 
as I as far as you know. <laughs> well, no, I was gonna say, um, you know, our show is relatively new, and so like me having right. a quote unquote track record is not quite as long lasting. But you know, you're gonna hear me apply the same standard regardless of side, regardless of who's in power. And that's not something you see when the left is activating cancel culture. I would like to say, though, too, and I was listening to, do you know Delano Squires from The Blaze, by any chance? I'm familiar with The Blaze. I'm not registering the name. Okay, so Delano Squires is on this show called Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Do you know Jason Whitlock, at least? Uh, Yeah, I believe so. Okay, so Delano Squires, he was talking about basically how the left will come up with these ideas that they think is so great for everyone else, but for themselves, right? And so he came up with the idea of a you-first policy, right? So if you believe that, for example, I know we're getting, not to get too off track, but let's say you believe in defunding the police, right? If you really believe in defunding the police, then you give give up your own personal security first before we defund the police. And then let me know how you feel about defunding the police. And I think when it comes to free speech, for example, that could definitely play into as far as, okay, you want to deplatform Joe Rogan for misinformation, for example? All right, go ahead and deplatform, I don't know, give me, give me a name out there that has given misinformation out there, but anyone out there on Spotify that talks about, for example, maybe how aliens came on Earth and created human life on Earth, those shows are not going to get those shows are not going to go get canceled or anything like that. But if you believe in misinformation, there's no valid proof that aliens came here and gave humans life on Earth. Can't deplatform that show or deplatform anyone out there that calls himself a liberal or a Democrat. Deplatform them first, you first, or whatnot. Deplatform, uh, like you said, Goldberg, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I really think that that emphasizes the idea of put your money where your mouth is. I heard something similar, uh, which was for the implementation of taxes. I think that people, and this is not my idea, but I'm fully on board with it now. I think if you vote for politicians who are on the platform of a specific amount of taxes, then you pay that level of taxes. Because when you have to put your money where your mouth is, we'll see two things. Number one, we'll see people stop voting for these radical tax policies. And number two, we'll stop seeing uh, the radical campaign on these tax policies because they won't be popular. So I am a big proponent of equally applying this concept across the board. And if you want something, you should be willing to put your money where your mouth is. Not None of this uh, for, for thee, but not for me nonsense that we've been seeing with, honestly, take your pick of a topic. Yeah, and unfortunately, the left has gotten so far from reality, at least at the ruling class and everything like that. I'm not going to apply it to the regular voter base necessarily, Though the regular voter base, at least sometimes when I talk to them, they kind of still don't register that cancer culture is real. But I digress. Distinction between uh, the the party um, as far as like the constituents who votes for them and then the party platform. I I agree. You got to You can't just lump them together. But I mean, honestly, there comes a point though where (laughs) you vote for them and you continue to vote for them. You know, you're either picking it as the lesser of two evils or you fully support it. And I don't think anyone but that person gets to pick their beliefs on that, you know. 
I will say this is probably the most passionate I've ever heard you <laughs> out of all at, at any point. <laughs> hey, you got me on a good day. I got caffeine going. You know, like I am, I am alert. <laughs> I'm on it. Yeah, this is. I I go into like full on debater mode. You know, just kind of <laughs> maybe too hey, fast. I respect we'll that. <laughs> I totally respect that. But you have any final thoughts for any of those stories? Mm. You know. One of the other reasons that I'm careful to not get too impassioned is because all it takes is someone to cut my clips out of context and they could really get me in some hot water. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's what this show is about, though, it too, is. as far yeah. as, you know, just go ahead and being blunt with your thoughts. Just go ahead and let, let the audience know where you actually stand. Because, yep. um, I mean, the whole purpose of why I started this show to begin with was because I believe unpopular speech was being attacked. And so taboo topics some of these opinions that are people are trying to censor basically that's being under attack right now and that's the one that's being those are the opinions and it just so happens to be the majority of conservative opinions and some of these people that express conservative opinions aren't even conservative like joe rogan (laughs) yeah which because I, they're realizing that you need a neutral standard and people who are in favor of cancel culture, which are heavily on the left right now, when the right starts going for it, I'll be criticizing them. But he's right. realizing and other people like him are realizing that you just say no. Like Dave Chappelle, great example. He just said no. He's like, I'm not going to be canceled. The 12 people who protested me. This was beautiful. He said, I'm willing to have a conversation, but you have to actually watch what I said. You don't get to take this out of context. You don't get to to watch the news version. You actually have to listen to what I said because then I'm willing to listen to criticism. And I'm hoping Joe Rogan does the same thing. I hope that we start seeing consistent standards applied across the board. That's, that is what I want. I, I don't want this deplatforming. I just want consistency. And I could definitely respect that. And it'll be a miracle at least from my perspective, if my show ever gets to that or even gets even remotely within the solar system, Joe Rogan's uh, listenership <laughs> numbers and everything like that. That's the dream. That is the dream. Yeah, but at that point, my bills would be paid off. <laughs> like, I would never have to. <laughs> I mean, cause I enjoy doing this kind of stuff. So at that point, it does it, it's not a job anymore. If you work at a job where you have, you're absolutely passionate about it, you never work a day in your life. At least that's how it goes, right? Anyways. <laughs> yes. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back after this short break. Stay tuned. And welcome back to Taboo Topic. I'm your host, Ken Drew, with one of the hosts of Between the Liars. How was your break, sir? Oh, it was good. How was yours? Oh, living the dream, my friend. Living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> like I said before the end of the last segment, that was the most passionate I've ever seen you so far, even from your own <laughs> show. So hopefully you yeah, keep you- that same energy up, man. <laughs> You, yeah, it's it's a Ryan exclusive. I don't know. You get me on a topic I'm passionate about that I'm fairly well versed in and just burnt out on the BS. You get this. <laughs> I mean, the show is all about being burnt out about the BS and just go ahead and just speak your mind, man. That's what the show's about. I love being blunt. <laughs> uh, get that one sided echo chamber going. You know, on the other one, you got to be courteous. You got that decorum with the debate. And it's like, oh, that's a great point. But here's why I think it's wrong. Nope. This one's just like all out on the table. No rebuttal. It's great. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, that's why that's, I mean, I'm sure, I'm assuming that's a compliment. I'm assuming that I'm taking that as a compliment as far as on yeah, this show. You could just be blunt with your thoughts and not have to worry about <laughs> any, you know, courtesy. There's a strength to both. You know, one of them shows the discourse and, and the opportunity to have a conversation. This one is the, uh, you know, the the, the partisan <laughs> echo chamber. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So, you know, if you want some pushback, go listen to Between the Liars. If you want to just hear Ryan unhinged without any pushback, you'll listen to him here as a guest. Yes, that is true. And if you want to see me more on the courtesy side, uh, the one time you could actually check me on the Between the Liars, talk about voting rights and everything like that. That's the one time where I actually had to, like, tone it down, I realized. As a matter <laughs> of fact, when I sent you those clips, I'm pretty sure you noticed, like, I was more comfortable and I was able to kind of express more. <laughs> yeah, but, you get that camera off you, you're good to go. I was like, ah, this is this is a lot more like his show. <laughs> yes, a lot more like my show. But eventually, in my audience, this is going to be the first time they're hearing this. Because I like the website you use to do the live streaming and then putting on YouTube. I'm actually going to eventually go get to that point. But I actually need some better equipment editing-wise. So I actually took your advice and went ahead and bought that uh, editing equipment for $69, $70, something like that. So it should be coming in soon, but pretty excited. So I can finally move away from Anchor, relying on Anchor in particular for <laughs> editing. It's not the best editing equipment. So, yeah, I told um, uh, I told Ken when I he was like, "You made me sound really good." I was like, "That is the beauty of of post edit. I can make anybody sound good, including myself, including my other hosts." You cut out all those breaths, like, <laughs> <laughs> and I tell our audience, "I'm like, you know, if you want, but." I would say uncensored, but it's not really like we throw around a lot of language. You know, the unedited version, train of thoughts might trail off at times. You go watch us live on YouTube. If you want the concise version where we sound like professionals, you go to our podcast. (laughs) I definitely sounded a lot more professional than I do in my own shows, but I got you. (laughs) I mean, at the same time, though, not to get too off track before this segment, at the same time, though, I do appreciate like the uncut like those little human moments where you just kind of have like a little brain fart for example i think it doesn't hurt the audience to hear that just lets the audience know that you're human yep and at the end of the day i mean people are a lot more gracious i like to think that we envision in our mind i think just putting our putting ourselves out there just kind of gives us like an extra nerve out just because like hey this is content for everyone to dissect and criticize (laughs) basically and that makes everyone uncomfortable. But sp- <laughs> speaking of uncomfortable, since everyone likes to talk about race, we'll talk about race in this segment. <laughs> I'll go ahead and start off with the story from the NFL. Uh, do you follow the NFL heavily? I think you say no from what I remember, correct? Uh, that would be correct. I think Super Bowl Sunday is the one time of year that I actually will sit down and it's more for the social people. Uh, <laughs> I have a, <laughs> you know, I've got Sports Center that sends me the scores of my teams, originally from Chicago. So just by default, I follow the Bears, the Blackhawks, the Cubs. But okay, you know, it's I not, see. Uh, I'm not heavily invested and not particularly invested in the news surrounding it either. So I'm really excited to hear what you got on this. Yes, and this will get into the story that you have concerning defining racism because this involves race. So, Brian Flores, an NFL coach for the Miami Dolphins. He was at least, not anymore. He, was, he got hired in 2019, got fired at the end of the, this year, which, by the way, not to insult my audience's intelligence, if you don't know what the NFL is, it's professional football. That's all it is. These players and coaches get paid multi-millions of dollars a year to play a game, which if I had any remote of the same talent that they had, I'd probably play a few years and just call it quits after that and retire because the amount of money they get paid is ridiculous just to play a game. 
It's crazy. But anyways. Or um, to not play, and you're on the bench. <laughs> yes, be a bench warmer. I don't even have to play. I could just be a bench warmer. It's, like, it's like $10 million to be one of the people who, like, holds – if you're a player who, like, holds the training dummies to help with training. It's it's insane. Yeah. I think I think they actually have a minimum wage of, like, at least a million dollars, something like that, which, again, that's just insane. I wish I had that for minimum wage. Again, I'll be happy to sit on the bench. I don't even have to take the hits or anything like that. But anyways – um, not to get too off track, but uh, my family are Dolphin fans, so I, by default, have to like them as well, and I kind of keep up with them, um, besides the NFL portion, which I follow the NFL as a whole, but I follow the Dolphins, and I have to like them, because I don't want to get on my family's bad side. Anyways, that said, like I said, after this year, the 2021 season, they got uh, despite the turnaround, after a 1-7 start, 1 win, and 7 losses to the beginning of the season, uh, Brian Flores actually turned things around and won 8 out of the last 9 games. So they finished the season 9-8. and eight. There's 17 games in the NFL now versus 16 like it used to be. So this was kind of an odd year. But anyways, despite that turnaround, he was fired. This shocked the football world, including myself. Since the coach has, since then, I should say, the coach has filed lawsuits against the Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, and the NFL as a whole, which, um, which we call, sorry, uh, which there have been two interviews, apparently, where the organizations, I think it's the Giants and the Denver Broncos, for example, they already knew the coaches they were going to hire originally, but they brought him in for an interview anyway. And this is where it kind of gets murky, I want to say. Because, first and foremost, well, not unsurprisingly, the liberal media, like ESPN, has got on board with this narrative by pointing out that the coaches those organizations hired, such as the Denver Broncos and the New York Giants, the coaches they ended up hiring were white and that there's only one black head coach in the NFL now when the players are predominantly black. In this lawsuit, there's also alleged corruption from the Dolphins owner where they offered incentives for him to lose games on purpose to earn a better draft position in the NFL draft, which do you know about the NFL draft at least? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so for the audience, again, not to insult my audience's intelligence, but for those who are not aware, the NFL draft is for those who imagine if you were on the team that lost the most, basically, and then the next season you get dibs on the first pick, and you can depict one of the best players in that pool, which for the NFL, all the players they draft are from college. So at this point in the draft, typically, like I said, they're the best to offer for, these, for that team to pick from. Anywho, this somehow is in connection with race, according to the lawsuit and interviews he's conducted. Uh, one thing to note that I'm sure you may may not know, but the NFL has this rule called the Rooney Rule. A rule where all NFL teams are obligated to interview someone of color for a head coach position if the organization needs to fill that void. So the Denver Broncos, like us, for example, and the New York Giants, they had a void. And so by NFL policy, they actually had to interview someone of color before going ahead and officially hiring those coaches per se. 
So my initial reaction is that probably what happened with the teams that brought him in anyway, despite knowing they weren't going to hire him, um, they probably were just following protocol in that department. Other than that, though, I find the racist allegations baseless. Do I think it's messed up? Yes. I wouldn't want to go into an interview that I knew I had no chance of getting just because of my ethnic background, So just so they don't get called racist. Uh, I don't think that rule in particular is doing any justice for the NFL owners, which I'm not one to defend them, but clearly this kind of puts them in an awkward position of just filling in a quota, essentially. I will say the incentive to lose is interesting because that is an actual strategy in the front office. However, when you talk to players and coaches, people who aren't on the field, basically, they want to win. They're not trying to lose. And there's been some speculation anyway, too, in the NFL world, the sports world, that the NFL is fixed, per se. That's just conspiracy theories, however you want to look at it. It's not a good look in that regard, but I still don't think that racism has any correlation to the situation as far as why he didn't get hired. I will say race played a part in the sense that they had to interview him just so they followed protocol, which to an extent that by itself is kind of racist from my perspective, maybe. Um, If you want to be treated equally, then we need to stop pushing for policies that promote hires or processes that focuses on someone's skin color, which that's why I say it's, it's a little bit racist in that department. I don't want someone to bring me in for an interview just to, fill in a quota. Um, I want someone to bring me in for an interview because of my merits. Would it be more credible if they interviewed Flores, if they just went off of merit instead of the quota? Probably. Um, I really don't know. I think this is just a very interesting situation. As a matter of fact, the incentive to lose, by the way, I think it was like $100 million per game for every loss. And so they were trying to tank for this particular quarterback named Joe Burrow, who happens to be playing in the Super Bowl next Sunday. <laughs> so that's the quarter, That's who they were trying to tank for, apparently. But obviously the coaches and the players did not get on board with that. And that ultimately pissed off the front office to where by the end of this year, because he wasn't going by with what they wanted, they ended up firing him. At least that's how I see it. Your initial thoughts. Well, let me say as someone who's kind of started dabbling in the job market, I'm wrapping up my PhD now and I'm looking at academic jobs primarily. Um, I I understand how much it sucks to apply for a job and then not even be considered or to be led along thinking you've got an actual shot, but then, you know, not actually getting it. And I'd like to point out first and foremost, this is not unique to the NFL. Like remove race for a second. This happens all the time for jobs. Let's say they put out a call for an assistant professor Uh, at let's just say my school, North Dakota State University. And they already know who they want to hire because they've been working with this person. Like, you know, they're dependent. They they know that, you know, they've got this relationship already. They're involved in the the culture of that organization. They're a good fit all over. You can't just hire that person. You have to, by, by policy, you have to put out a call for applicants. Now, they already know that they want to hire this person, so it's a formality, but they still have to interview. Which means that really, none of the applicants, except for the one person that they know about, really has a chance, unless they like really get blown away by them. But it's still a formality. So does that mean that it's based off of race? Not necessarily. But you know, it doesn't mean it sucks any less for the person. But 
this is what we would call a confounding variable. So if you if you actually wanted to to assess whether or not this was caused by race, you would have to demonstrate that it was a racial issue, not just that race. Uh, let me put it this way. There's a difference between I applied for the position and I didn't get it because I wasn't qualified and I happened to be black in this case versus I applied for the position and I was qualified or wasn't qualified and I didn't get it because I was black. So think about it this way. If we wanted to look at the rate of ice cream consumption and the number of sunburns, it doesn't mean that the more ice cream you sell, the more sunburns you get. So sunburns you know, are <laughs> caused by, by ice cream consumption, right? It's the difference between correlation versus causation. We would need to look at this other variable, which in which let's say is hot temperatures, right? So if it's hot outside, I'm more likely to go out and get ice cream because it sounds really good. I'm out in the sun. I happen to get sunburned. It doesn't mean that going to get ice cream means that I got sunburned necessarily. But, you know, you see what I'm saying here? There's kind of this, yes. there's this correlation that can exist, but it doesn't mean it was because of the race of the person. That's so a good point. I, I really think that, and this is where Josh and I disagree heavily on our show. He thinks there, <laughs> in general, from the way he talks, it. I would gather and say, if I had to sum up his argument, you should do anything to protect the racial identity of people. Therefore, even though they can't necessarily demonstrate discrimination based off of race, we need to be able to prosecute these people. So in this case, he'd probably say that the NFL has historically not allowed people who are non-white to have these positions. Therefore, the fact that they happen to find someone that they say is more qualified is indicative of systemic racism versus I would say that I think that sure it could be, but you can't just go after someone Unless you can demonstrate that that's the case. And I think that you need a more compelling case than I didn't get it and I happen to be a specific race. Like, honestly, if they're going to do this, they also need to publish what were the qualifications of the people? What was the win record? Have they had any experience? Because like very often what we're seeing here is the individual who's filing this discrimination complaint just didn't have the same win record loss. They didn't have the same experience. If all those things line up and then they didn't hire them, I'd be much more open to hearing it was racial discrimination. When, I mean, well, let me just pivot here real quick. The NFL players in 2020, 57.5% African-American or black. 24.9% white, and then Asian is 0.1%. That doesn't mean that they're discriminating against Asian. It means that they're picking based off of performance, and it happens to correlate with the races in this instance. The, the race was a factor. It was not the determining factor. Are we going to say then that the NFL is also racist towards white, Asian, Pacific Islanders, mixed people, just because they don't have as many in their quota? But also add real quick, it also kind of represents in the ethnic group's interest as well so if, let's say that one percent of asians there's only one percent of asians in the nfl maybe there's a chance that the reason that's like that's not necessarily because and the nfl has racist policies but because but maybe because in asian culture there's more emphasis on education than getting involved with sports i know this is very general terms i'm speaking right now don't take it you know personally or anything like that and i'm not saying that asians can't have interest in sports but i'm just saying there's other factors to consider besides just saying the NFL is racist, but to kind of, I'm just adding to your point basically right now. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I mean, this is where you really have to be careful that you're drawing, not you, but the general you, you know, like if someone's going to draw right. the conclusion that this is based off of racism, 
you have to be very careful where you aim that gun. Because I'm going to be honest, the the people who are supporting these accusations without evidence. Now, you give me an instance where they actually demonstrate evidence, I am more than happy to get on board and tear down the system that is actively discriminating against someone based off of their race, 100%. What they're not right. what they're not against especially the Biden administration is equity or equal <laughs> outcome because what they're saying is we have to have a proportionate number of people because of their race, not, you know, you need to like the interview you mentioned, it's a great example of you have to give them a chance because of their race, which is down, honestly, if I were the, that was having someone say that about me, I would be infuriated because it insinuates that the only reason that I would get that job in the first place is not because of my qualifications and I happen to be X minority, Y minority, but rather that's the <laughs> only reason. That's where, you know, affirmative action is the only legal form of discrimination in the United States because it benefits and and helps people overcome obstacles, but it is an active form of discrimination. I'm not going to say it's racism, but it is discrimination. The distinction is that discrimination means that we are... Um, you know, a little bit more selective versus we'll get into racism definitions in a minute here. But it would be racist if they're saying, say, for example, Joe Biden come out and was to say, I'm only going to look at black women for, eh, I don't know, let's say Supreme Court nominee, <laughs> right? Like that is literally the definition of racism because it's overlooking qualified people. If he had said, I'm looking for the most qualified candidate and the one he picks happens to be a black woman, that would be fine. But the way he's going about it is the inverse, and it actually is the reason that it is, in my opinion, and honestly, objectively, racist, because it says that it is the color of the skin that is the quality that they're seeking, not the qualifications. I'll just I want to interrupt real quick. I think Joe Biden also, if let's say that was his true intent as far as like he just doesn't really care about any other qualifications besides the fact that it's a black female. Keep that thought to yourself, at least. Don't put it out for the whole public to know, <laughs> at least. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Well, Joe Biden is saying the quiet part out loud. I mean, that that has been the way that they're going about this. But I mean, he just happens to be. Now. Yeah. Generally speaking, yes. But now he's he's saying the quiet part out loud, which is crazy. And what's more crazy to me, he gets away with it. And it's because it gets those boxes. You know, it, it gets pulled around as, well, it's leveling the playing field. Okay, so you're going to overlook the fact that they're literally condescending to minority groups. And, and in effect, they're saying that the only way that they would possibly get this job is because of the color of their skin, not because they're qualified, which now undercuts whatever woman that he chooses to put on the Supreme Court, because now some jerk is going to come out and say, well, it's just because she's a black woman, which is, you know, potentially that's ridiculous. I'll, I'll hold off my judgment on that till I see the the candidate because I'll very well have some nitpicks about who they are. But, you know, do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's opening the door for someone to actually be racist about it because he's setting those parameters. I will say that there is some irony, and I kind of said this on your show too, that race is being used as a shield from any sense of accountability whenever there's something bad or something's bad happening in particular. I'm going to add now that race is being used as a shield to cover up bad decisions or bad policy making as well. Like in a Supreme Court uh, justice, just based solely on the fact that she's black and female. We're not going to look at anything else. We're just going to focus on that fact by itself. We're just going to use race as our shield, though, so people can't, you know, come criticize us. And anyone who c criticizes us, they're racist. That's the reason why. 
Well, and, and that approach was popularized by President Obama because he would do an unpopular and at times unconstitutional policy and say the reason people don't like it is because of either A, they don't understand it, so kind of condescending to the people, or B, because they're racist. And the problem now is that the left is trying to use the same argument and they no longer have someone who is articulate or not white. So they kind of lose <laughs> ground on both of those. Like President Obama was, say what you will about his policies. I have a lot of criticisms about his policies. He was a very eloquent, very good speaker. Yes. Joe Biden is not. And Joe Biden is white. At least not his state. <laughs> I, well, I mean, honestly, he was he was never a strong, strong speaker. Not, I mean, not like President Obama, not like a lot of the people that we've seen. Now, now, granted, I tend to vote off of policy, not off of flowery language. So it's not necessarily a downfall, in my opinion, that they can't speak as well. But you don't get to, you can't take the same tactic. And I've maybe we're getting off track here, but like you can't take the same tactic and cry racism when you're you're not when you're not you know President Obama in that instance, or like you know in the case of the NFL here to kind of bring it back. You're you're trying to say that because racism is one of the factors, or uh, race is one of the factors, we automatically land on racism. I think you got to be careful about that. If you demonstrate the evidence, I'm more than happy uh, to back you on that. Or not you? Yeah, yeah. Just for clarity for the for the audience. <laughs> yeah, whoever yeah, wants sure. to take that position, especially um, remind me the. The man who's leveling these oh, accusations. Brian yeah, Brian so Flores, Brian, yeah. if he wants to come out and say that this is the case, demonstrate the evidence, or like even, even try, because it's, it's a very difficult thing to prove, and I understand that, and I respect that. It's very difficult to prove sexism in the workplace. It's very difficult to prove racism. It's very difficult to prove a lot of things. So I sympathize with that, but you have to try. And I feel like we've gotten to the point where we're no longer trying. I feel like we get to just throw it out there, and everybody backs down because it's a buzzword. And I think that buzzword has evolved now to the point where <laughs> we're actually redefining what racism is. And I think you have a story about that, what right? A, what a beautiful segue. That's why I was laughing a second ago because <laughs> it is. So racism has evolved three times, or the definition of it. Um, I'll, I'll give you the original. I'll give you the one that Whoopi Goldberg pulled from in our early, earlier segment. And then I'll give you the one... Uh, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, who used to be a lot more of like a, a, a think like the ACLU, like something like that, like protecting of specific rights. Now they're just kind of operationalized against whatever the populist agenda is <laughs> okay. for for whatever the popular agenda is. Got it. They, they literally changed it Wednesday in response to what she had said. Oh, wow. Because uh, they realized that they needed this suspicious. <laughs> CYA, cover your butt. Okay, so here was the original definition of racism. The original definition was racism is the belief that a particular race is superior or inferior to another, that a person's social and moral traits are predetermined by his or her inborn biological characteristics. And that was the definition by the ADL. And, and think about that, where this might have been coming from. So that really solidifies the way the Holocaust went down, right? Because it was the belief that one race, based off of the specific character traits, made them inferior. Or even slavery. Black people were seen as inferior because of the color of their skin, inborn biological characteristics. They even said that black people had smaller brains. Women had smaller brains. And, and that might be sexism instead, but same, same concept here. They have smaller brains biologically, therefore they are less smart. 
as predetermined by their genetic makeup, which is crazy, but it, it's it's a universal application, right? Anyone right. can do this. Got it. Okay, so here is the definition that Whoopi Goldberg was pulling from. Racism is defined as the marginalization and or oppression of people of color based on socially constructed racial hierarchy that privileges white people. Let me wow. read that again because, uh, <laughs> yes, I this needs to sink in. This was... The Anti-Defamation League said racism is the marginalization and or oppression of people of color based on socially constructed racial hierarchies that privileges white people. So let me break this down. It's now basically saying that only people of color, so non-white, can be oppressed. They can only – racism goes one way. Okay. White people, you, you can't – no one can be racist. Same racism anymore. <laughs> right. And then it also says that that is because of the socially constructed racial hierarchy that privileges white people. So think systemic racism. That's that's where this is coming from. Basically, because the system is built by white people to privilege white people, they do they they can't be discriminated against because they hold the mechanisms of power, which is where we and, and I'll get into this a little bit more because I've, I've got a lot of thoughts on power. Uh, that I'd really like to get into if we have the time. And it also stems from critical race theory and intersectionality. Uh, intersectional I was going to say, it sounds like, I was going to yeah. say, it definitely sounds like a punch of critical race theory yeah, right if, there. And I, I, if you want, I'll just go off on that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I have all but, the time in the world. <laughs> okay, good, great. I love to hear it. So it's basically saying that you can only be discriminated against if you are a group that is marginalized and doesn't hold power. And here's the crazy part, and this is why Whoopi said this, because the left, who buys into this belief, believes that Jewish people and Asian people are white adjacent. And the reason they say that is because those people statistically do better in society. So if you look at the top earning ethnic groups, it's it's actually not white people. It's Asians. <laughs> it's Asians, um, followed by a variety of other mixed races, but it also would include Jewish people at, at some point. I don't, I don't think they're in the top five, and I don't know that they rank above white people, but they certainly rank above other minorities. Uh, particularly, that makes sense, actually. Right. Just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little joke. <laughs> but what we're seeing here is they're now using this definition in conjunction with those say that you benefit from white. You might not be white, but you benefit from a white society. Therefore, you cannot be oppressed. And that's why Whoopi Goldberg made the factually incorrect statement that this was that that the Holocaust was two white groups of people because they don't. She said the quiet part out loud. They do not view Asians or Jewish people as their own ethnicities or their own races. They view them as white because they benefit quote-unquote, from white privilege, quote-unquote, white systems. Literally saying that, right. Right, like, going so far as to say that they are white. Blows my yeah. mind. I think, I'm going to interrupt here if you don't no, mind no, for please, a moment. Please. But to kind of go back to the Holocaust comparison that she made and everything like that, this redefinition of racism this is the kind of thought process that creates Holocaust. And, yes. and I yes. know it's a little out there, but no, it's, it's, it. a, it's, you, you, 
Josh would say you're snowballing. You know, you got the snowball fallacy, which is where you start and then, you know, <laughs> you, you start at one but claim the worst and then case scenario. you end at yeah. the worst case scenario. But here's the deal. You are spot on and it is not because it eventually leads to those beliefs. And this is where we we have what is known as othering. Are you familiar with that? As a matter of fact, I am not. <laughs> okay. So othering is basically to say, they are not a part of our group. They are the other, the other individual, other groups. So one of the things that I study um, in, in my communication emphasis is the concept of in-group and out-group. Are you familiar with that? Nope. <laughs> okay. Great. Uh, that means you get to hear me get really passionate about some nerdy stuff here. All right, let's go. <laughs> okay, so in-group, out-group basically says that when you look, let's say an organization for a moment, right? Uh, you have... In, in those who are in the group and outside of the group. So you go to university now. Uh, remind me of your school again. It's not University of Central Florida. It's uh, University of South Florida. University of South Florida. I was close. Oh. <laughs> so imagine you are in the class. You're in, I don't know, what's one of the classes you're taking this semester? Uh, econ. Okay. So in your econ class, amongst the other students you have sub, uh, either unconsciously or consciously formed a group, right? Because you are grouped into a class under a specific professor. Right. Anyone who is not in that group is considered an out-group member. They are outside of the group. I would be an out-group member. You and your classmates would be an in-group member, which means that there is a certain level of cohesion amongst your groups, even unconsciously, because of the shared camaraderie that you have. You were in the military. You have people who are in that group and those who are outside. I'm a civilian. You're a vet. Right. There, is, there is experiences and understandings that you have, jargon that you understand. Anyone in the military can relate to that. Anyone who is not in the military cannot. So it, it creates this barrier between people who are in the group and out of the group. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Othering says... Those it kind of takes it to the next step where it's like, well, they're lesser than us. They are they are not of us. They are the other. Therefore, they are subpar. You carry this out in Yikes. a racial. You carry this. Out, you see where this is going and where the Holocaust comes in. If if we have, let's say, Whoopi Goldberg has now distinguished between white and non-white. You are in the system, benefiting from it or outside of it. In this case, because she happens to have some of the levers of power, i.e., the media. She gets to create an othering group, and this is how you marginalize people. You say that they are not a part of our ethnicity. They are not a part of our group. And she didn't go so far as to say that they are inferior, but she did kind of have a, a, a parallel thought that Hitler did there, which is that, well, Jewish people are not an ethnicity. It wasn't about race, and she's undercutting the severity of the issue. Because she's she's grouping them in and out group. Now that's not inherently bad, right? It's it's not inherently bad to recognize that someone is of a particular race. It is bad when you're a jerk to them because of their race, right? That's where we have racism. Right. <laughs> maybe, a little, maybe a little further than being a jerk, but with the bottom a little line old school here, there too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, gotta gotta watch that. Like, I don't. <laughs> Ryan's episode is explicit now. Uh, <laughs> so the way that we're seeing this now is critical race theory is kind of think the umbrella over intersectional theory. And I'm not saying it comes from it because technically I'd be wrong to say that, but it is similar veins of thought. For those who might not know, intersectional theory 
uh, developed primarily by Kimberly Crenshaw and is used by people like Ibram X. Kendi, uh, which basically says that you can determine who can discriminate and who can be discriminated against based off of the number of boxes that they check off. So think of intersectionality, intersection, so where two things cross. It was originally proposed that the more minority boxes you check, the more opportunity or the more minority groups you're a part of, the more opportunity you have to be discriminated against. So, for example, if you are black, you can face discrimination for that. If you are a woman, you can face discrimination for that. If you are transgender, you can face discrimination for that. Now we intersect those, we combine them, they, they cross. So now picture someone who is a black trans woman. They would argue that there are multiple fronts that someone can be discriminated against. So that's intersectionality. Okay. At face value, that's, that's not wrong. I have no problem with that. What I have a problem with is how it is used now. The way that it's used now is it's become a way to rank the hierarchy of oppression. So I am a white, straight, cisgender male, therefore I am the <laughs> least oppressed. And I, you know, someone who is it's fair game a, too for anyone to come after you. <laughs> right. And yes. In fact, they would argue that because I am at the very, very bottom, like literally the only one who's going to be above me here is going to be like a white white cisgender woman because she has the minority box of a woman that can be checked, right? So right. It creates this hierarchy and then basically says, well, you're at the bottom of that list. You hold the most power. Therefore, you're actually the oppressor by the color of your skin. You are the oppressor by the biological sex. You are the oppressor just by the way that you choose to live your life. Right. And that's that's obviously wrong, right? Like it, it's, right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absurd and, and false on its face to say that. But, but this, I'm going to bring it back now to what Whoopi was saying. You, you have this idea that you can rank the hierarchy of oppression. You now say Jewish people, Asian people, they're white adjacent. They can't be oppressed because they've actually benefited from the systems, the quote unquote white systems. All right. Interesting. So I would the, say, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. You say what? I was just going to say that. Do you believe in the term history repeats itself? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I don't. I think history rhymes. I don't think we'll actually, because okay. we'll never actually see another Hitler unless we oh, sure. get his DNA and clone him kind of deal, right? Okay. And certain patterns happen again, certain events happen again, just in a different form. So that's why I think okay. the term history rhymes is better fit than history repeats itself. But because this goes, because obviously this is all connected to critical race theory, where basically you're categorized into two groups. You're either the oppressor or the you're the oppressed and critical race theory, the oppressor, anyone who's white, right? And I had a conversation with someone recently, and they sometimes will defend these critical race theory uh, principles, or just in general, whether it's history, for example, right? Think about history. They'll bring up, you know, well, the Holocaust, I mean, it's not, we're not trying to discriminate against white people or anything like that, make, trying to make them feel bad or trying to make it okay to be mean to them or anything like that. But, I mean, we're just trying to teach them stuff that caused the way the present is formed today, just like the Holocaust teachings, right? right? Now, this is the difference I want to point out to my audience, the difference between the Holocaust, 
uh, education and critical race theory. The Holocaust education teaches people scapegoating is wrong. Critical race theory promotes scapegoating. And in this case, white people. White people are the oppressors. White people are the ones who are responsible for your issues right now. White people are responsible for X, Y, and Z. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, if it fits the literal definition, because if if the original definition of racism was that racism is the belief that a particular race is superior or inferior, it's no longer the Hitler nationalistic idea that we are better, but it is a different variation of that. It is saying that by the color of your skin, biologically, you are an oppressor. By the color of your skin, biologically, you are the oppressed. It, it's it's flipped it. So it's it's a different group saying the same thing different way. Because it is and then I have with critical race theory is that it it's it's basically racial essentialism. The way that Ibram X. Kendi purports this is it is racial essentialism, which is the idea that you know, by definition of your skin, you're, you're automatically categorized, basically, in a nutshell. I'm, I'm summarizing here, but like, <laughs> right. literally, it's so it, it fits the original definition of racism, which is why they changed it. Let me because, stop you real quick because yeah. I have a question. Because yeah. obviously, you know a lot more about this than I do. So <laughs> I'm going to pick your mind a little bit. Yeah, I'll do what I can. Because in my mind, anyway, when, I, when it comes to like critical race theory and anything like that, and they're trying to redefine these things and apply critical race theory, at least the principles aspect anyway. I think as far as just trying to dismantle the system, I think critical race theory has Marxist roots. Am I wrong to assume that or thinking that? Does it have Marxist roots? Uh, to my understanding, it does, especially because of its association with Black Lives Matter, which does have Marxist roots. Like the If you go to the bios of the founders of Black Lives Matter – they say that they are a Marxist organization. So by that extension, I would say you are correct. Okay, because in my head, in order to, for Marxist society, Karl Marx obviously promoted the idea of social, of class warfare, right? Or social class warfare, something along those lines? Yes. Remind me. <laughs> yes, yes. So okay. instead of race, it's it, the, the, he believes that the severe um, divide in a society is based off of the, the classes, yes. Okay, so... Where I was going with that is I think by trying to like using a broad stroke and saying that anything that's Eurocentric, Judeo-Christian centric is a form of white supremacy, has racist roots, you know, applying that critical race theory, it's oppression and everything like that, I think is a strategy. And I, this is speculation at this point. I'm just talking, you know, don't hold me to it. <laughs> Uh, conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat, whatever. But I think ultimately their goal by redefining what racism is and applying critical race theory principles in schools, for example, I think ultimately they're trying to convince people that our constitution, for example, and the Western idea of democracy needs to die. And in order to, in order to accomplish this and replace it with Marxism, for example, we have to create some kind of warfare between uh, the people in particular. So in this case, uh, instead of going through the class warfare, they're going through the race war racial warfare in particular, which has been somewhat successful depending on where you're at, I think. If you're yeah. in more nor bluer states like California, for example, it's worked magnificently over there. This pretty much – I mean 
it's not a coincidence that people caught commune fornia for a reason. All right. <laughs> well, I mean, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you're good. Um, I guess I would say in case you happen to get anyone who listens to your show, who thinks that critical race theory isn't being taught in schools. It is, it's, it's, it is an attempt or at least they're trying to. And this is the semantics game that's being played or the word game that's being played by the left where they basically say, well, it's not the exact legal definition in all of its upper graduate level form. Therefore it is not CRT, which is like me saying, I gave you a cupcake. I didn't give you a cake. So I didn't give you a cake, even though it's all of the essential <laughs> ingredients. Like it's complete BS. Right. And I, I, I did pull up the exact definition of racial essentialism just for the sake of me being correct, uh, which is defined as a belief in a genetic or biological essence that defines all members of a racial category. So basically you are white, therefore you possess all of the characteristics of the power group who oppresses people. It doesn't matter what you currently do, right? And this is why when you teach critical race theory, it, it is in essence racial essentialism because it says you are African-American. It does not matter what your current socio socioeconomic status is. It does not matter what your parents do. It does not matter what you do in life. You will always be oppressed. That is, that is well, racial way, essentialism. Yeah. So the way I think about how they're incorporating critical race theory, I think they're right in saying they're not specifically talking teaching critical race theory. like there's not an actual right. class for critical race theory sure, by itself of course. and that's how the left will turn it into like well there's no actual class teaching yep. students critical race theory but what they're doing which i think is even more dangerous is they're actually applying principles of critical race theory and putting them into practice in the real world yes. which i think is a lot more dangerous than having like an actual critical race theory class by itself for example because if you teach the class by itself it's not going to sell people. People are not going to buy into that. But if you can sneak it in there and right. start like slowly incorporating like bits and pieces of critical race theory, uh, when you, before you, you know it, <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. Like, yeah. And the whole and world is racist now. <laughs> and before, you know, you or anybody else says, oh, this is like tinfoil hat. Cause you know, you kind of, you cushion it a little bit with that. It's not because they might not be coming in and, and explaining the legal scholarly definitions to the kindergartners and the first graders but they're making them check their boxes of their privilege. And then they're saying, ah, Kimmy here comes from a white family <laughs> in this neighborhood. It's saying that by the, the virtue of your skin, you fit into one category and another. And actually, I want to expound on, on what you were saying here about undermining the cultural aspect by introducing these things. Because one of the things I studied for my comprehensive exams, which is one of the final things I'm doing right before I write my dissertation, I read about power and power structures, and I focus that in the organization. But you're exactly right, because power uses something called social categorization, which is where we basically we have assumptions of a group based on identifying characteristics. So <laughs> Josh said this on my show. Well, I'm assuming that because, or he didn't say this outright, but <laughs> I'm paraphrasing here, maybe putting words in his mouth. <laughs> He's not here to defend himself. Uh, <laughs> Come on my show, Josh. Come on. <laughs> He's saying that it, when you say that by, by, by passing certain laws, you marginalize groups, you're making, you know, say like voter ID laws, it marginalizes people of color. You're making an assumption that because someone is a person of color, they're incapable of getting an ID. You have categorized them, like social categories, right. based off of something that you know about them, a, a character trait. In this case, it's the color of their skin. And this affects what's known as the self-concept. 
or the way that someone views themselves. And that, the way I view myself, is influenced by the assumptions put upon me by a category. So it is in a very real sense what you're mentioning a second ago of they say these things in society, people start believing them. There's your scholarly proof for that, social categorization. So for example, if I am a person of color and I hear that, oh, it marginalizes me because I don't have an ID, then I start to assume, oh, I am powerless. And when I assume I'm powerless. Or like the NFL coach for Brian Flores, for example, assuming race has played a part of why he's not being hired right now. Yes. And when someone assumes they're powerless, they act powerless. There is, there's actually empirical evidence that supports the idea. They've done studies on this, that you will live up to the standards I set for you. If I set low expectations, you will, you will, (laughs) you'll meet those low expectations. If I set high expectations, you will strive to meet those. You might fail, but you know, think about someone who has a lot of potential, but they never reach it because either someone else sets low a bar for them or they set a low bar for themselves. It's very much, you know, politicians, you, you have to ask yourself who benefits from this politicians convince people that they are victims school districts convince people that by nature of your skin you are a victim you I would owe also, yourself to that yeah i would also argue though too with that mindset if you keep telling someone over and over and over again that there's a certain group out there that's holding you back per se that's going to create animosity which will yes. create that warfare that is needed in order yes. for that marxist regime to come in and take place because you literally believe now that this whole culture and society and our system in particular is racist and it's meant to hold you down in particular. And before someone tries to straw man everything I've said by saying, ah, well, there's individual experience of racism and all true. And anything that I said did not undercut that. I believe that there are specific instances of racism, but my point would still stand that the, the concepts that are bleeding into Whoopi Goldberg and the reason she has that suspension now, or the, the, the ideas of Ibram X. Kendi or critical race theory and intersectional theory, all of those are being used as a generalization. And they say to their convenience, it doesn't matter what your past is, you're still a victim. Like I'm, I, am not, I am not actually the one in the instance here who is undercutting individual experience, it is them. You know, there's plenty of poor white people in the United States. Right. That's a, that's an individual situation. There's plenty of wealthy black people or Asian people. I would say look at this at an individual level, and honestly, I think a class factor would would factor into that more than the color of your skin, right? Like it's it's actually more difficult in today's modern age for you to to rise off of where you start on the socioeconomic ladder than by virtue of your skin. There is no legal law that says you can be discriminated against. By the color of your skin. There's not. And if there is, it's not being exercised because it would actually be shot down. So it's really, there are individual acts of evil, and I acknowledge that absolutely without qualm. But what they're doing here is they're saying, by color of your skin, you are predetermined to be successful or not. You are predetermined to be an oppressor or the oppressed. BS. You know, I would just end it with this. Um, with that redefinition or redefining of racism and everything like that, the way you just described it anyway, and how basically white people, you know, it's not racist against white people, basically. Uh, this goes, we have really regressed in 
gotten further away from what MLK, MLK was striving for uh, during the civil rights era. We're literally going backwards now. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty depressing because um, Dr. King would even say that we're not trying to ostracize one group in particular, which, you know, he was a preacher and everything like that comes from the church, which, you know, I'm not going to get too into the church and everything like that. But if you look at the Christian worldview, which is really what our Western society was founded upon, I would argue, but in Western society and in the Christian worldview, it's wrong to take out or it's wrong to repay evil for evil, for example, right? I understand, for example, like, yes, there were events in Western history where we looked at certain groups at a, you know, disproportionately low level, or we just viewed them as less of a human, but it just wasn't, you know, with the African-American population, for example. We also looked down upon Catholics who entered the country at one point, right? And there were a lot of white Catholics that came to the United States that were discriminated against as well. But unfortunately, what this critical race theory is doing is also like rewriting, it's rewriting history at this point, which in a Marxist society, truth doesn't exist. Truth doesn't matter, <laughs> unfortunately. And I would, yeah, I would ve very much appreciate if some people on the left would actually start speaking out, in particular, uh, colored liberals in particular, right? People like myself who, I'm not a liberal by any means, but those who consider themselves moderate and everything like that and are seeing this, instead of just like keep quiet and everything like that just for the sake of not being called a white supremacist and everything like that, start speaking out, right? Don't let the silent majority um, stay silent, basically, right? And unfortunately, the reason how we got here is because too many people stayed silent. <laughs> and I th that's what I think anyway. Do you have any final thoughts? It's never too late. We, you know, we, we have the opportunity to take it back at any time. The question is, in my opinion, will we? Uh, there's, there's a final thing that kind of ties back to the in-group and out-group and the social power structures. And it's this idea of de-individuation which is where we remove the personal and human characteristics and we replace them with more global features. So this can obviously be done in like a racial way, but think like aggressive lawyer, loudmouth boss. We, we don't look at them as the individual person that they are. We look at them as some of the more general characteristics. And this is, this is when taken far enough, what leads to something like the Holocaust. I don't think we're there yet by no stretch of the imagination, but it is right. these beliefs that devalue people. And when you are backing something as overtly racist as critical race theory um, and at times the way that they apply intersectional theory, then you're you're pushing that snowball further down the hill and it harms the way we view other people. It's how we get someone like Whoopi Goldberg saying basically uh, Asian people, uh, Jewish people, they're they're white, right? Like we, we're looking at them as as categories rather than individual people. When we do that, we have a much less difficult time treating them terribly. So we really we really need to be careful about the way that we we group people regardless of who you are or you know what what the the group happens to be. And with that ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back after this short break. Stay tuned. 
And welcome back to Taboo Topic. I am your host, Ken Drew. Back with my friend from Between the Liars, Ryan. Thank you for uh, joining. It going? It's <laughs> going great, man. Thanks for joining the today's show. It's been it's been fun actually. Uh, especially hearing you nerd out about critical race theory. <laughs> Uh, man, you get me on a topic that I'm passionate about or like, especially that like critical race theory doesn't have to do with my, my area of expertise for like my dissertation and stuff. But like, man, anything I can do to be a representation of actual people who are in academics who don't buy into that, I am all about geeking out for that. So in that case, you fit in with the show, the taboo topic. You have a taboo opinion in the academic world. <laughs> I do. And my goal is to corrupt as many students with it covertly as I possibly can. <laughs> yeah, I totally respect that. I mean, which me call it? it's definitely been a culture shock for me going back to a college uh, environment versus the military environment where the military environment environment, excuse me, has like an alpha male mentality and also a lot more conservative mindset, at least within the people that, that I'm surrounded with versus an academic level. The yeah, it's completely opposite, <laughs> basically, where the what is it, beta male is promoted essentially something like that is that did i say it right i don't know but also just the lefty uh, talking points that i hear now from my classmates it's uh it's a culture shock for me but i'm sure you're used to it at this point so <laughs> <laughs> i am uh, let's see I, I did four years of undergrad two years for my master's and this is my third for my phd so i've i have been pretty accustomed to that now it's no longer a culture shock for me but i don't know i i've also attended in more red states, North Dakota, Tennessee, Kentucky. So even well, one of the stories actually <laughs> kind of revolves around North Dakota. You know, we'll get into that in just a second. Yeah, I know we kind of got into like this little doomsday scenario in the last segment, but we will end on end on an optimistic note eventually. Um, but to say on the realms of social subjects, at this point, these last two stories are mine. Uh, Ryan didn't want any more stories. Those are the two stories he's most passionate about. These stories I'm pretty passionate about, especially this next one, coming out of my state, actually, not North Dakota, but this is coming out of my state, and staying in the realms of social subjects, uh, abortion, not abortion. Uh, just a disclaimer out there to my audience, I'm not, I don't want to disrespect anyone who's gone through the abortion process. Um, this is not an attack on you or anything like that, whatever opinions that may be expunged on this show. Um, and it may get graphic. I don't know. Depends on how much we know about the subject itself. But uh, to get into it for a second, uh, right now, as it stands here in my state, it is legal up to 24 weeks. Abortion is, and it is only allowed beyond beyond that if the pregnancy threatens a woman's life and physical health. Which, from my perspective, that is very lenient for a southern state. But this new bill they have proposed, which would ban abortion up to a 15-week period, mirroring the Mississippi bill that's being reviewed right now in the Supreme Court, banning all abortions after 15 weeks without exception, uh, there was an attempt at some point during the process where they wanted to include exceptions for rape and incest, but the GOP-led Senate panel rejected the proposal. The panel approved the bill without this, ex without this exemption, which my awesome governor, Rob DeSantis, uh, which I hope he runs in 2024, but I digress. He's already expressed support for this bill. And it's important to note that 90% of abortions in Florida are in the first trimester, which under 1% uh, 
And I say that very loosely because it's like a lot of zeros after the dot. But under 1% of rape of the abortions are rape scenarios, which doesn't get into my personal beliefs yet. Until now. <laughs> I have been in complete support of complete abolition of abortion for the past few years now. There was a period in my life when I was open to rape and incest, incest exceptions and just abortion altogether at one point too when I was in an unhealthy relationship at the time. It still haunts me to this day, to be honest. People don't think about how abortion can affect a man, but it definitely can affect a man. And I definitely, um, to this day, it haunts me to the, the idea that I opened up myself to basically killing my child for the sake of making someone else happy because it was inconvenient for them. But uh, it also haunts me in a sense like it went against my Christian belief. That said, most pro-choices will always try to make this a separation of church and, separation of church and state issue, saying people like myself have no right to impose my religious beliefs, which I'd argue, one, separation of church and state doesn't mean people like myself don't have a say and can't persuade our governments to pass laws that, will that we believe will benefit everyone else. But two, I'd also argue you don't even have to believe in God to be against abortion and support this bill. How, to me, it's like, how can anyone fathom allowing an individual to take another way human's chance to have their first breath of fresh air? This is just a surface level of my beliefs. But what do you think about this, Bill? I know I focus more on the moral aspect and the legal aspect, which maybe that's something you can bring into as far as, you know, focus more on the legal aspect. But I will say I do wonder if the Supreme Court decision with the Mississippi bill that's being reviewed right now will affect how this bill will be moved forward. But go ahead. <clears throat> go ahead. Let, give me your initial thoughts. Sure. So I think that anytime you've got laws surrounding abortion, there's a lot of misconceptions. So for example, we've heard that the Supreme Court is potentially open to reviewing Roe versus Wade. And I think that for a lot of people, they automatically assume that that means that if Roe versus Wade were to be overturned, then abortion would be completely illegal, which is actually false. That would just remove the federal standard, which means that it would fall as per the constitution to the state's own discretion, which means that you know, you're seeing a lot of states who are setting their own restrictions. And the purpose of Roe versus Wade was to say, here is the national standard. You can be more loose than that if you want to, but like you can't go above it. And so, I mean, even if, even if Roe versus Wade were to be overturned, you're not going to see like California where abortion is going to be illegal at that point. It, it's just right. Or New York or happen. Illinois. Right. And so what you're seeing here then with this abortion law is that Florida is trying to set their own standards for what they would like the rule to be. And I think what's important, regardless of where you stand on, you know, the, the reasoning for the abortion, I think it is important to remember that if you're setting it at 15 weeks, eight to 12 weeks is, is about the time where you're seeing actually on a, on a micro scale, a lot of the human traits developing. So for example, you're already seeing a heartbeat at that point. Like it is a detectable heartbeat even before they're allowing abortion to take place. So I, you know, you, you hear like the heartbeat law, like they want to set that in that they were going for that in Texas. A lot of them, they're, they're trying to curb. It's not that they're trying to completely remove abortion as an option, but they're trying to set certain parameters. So I guess that would be my initial thoughts is that, they're doing this at the state level. This is only affecting Florida. So if you live there, of course, it's going to affect you, but it's not setting a national standard. And 
you know, there's, there's, there's reason you can agree or disagree with the reasons, but you know, they do have a basis for it, whether or not people agree with it, but that's where the discussion comes in, I guess. And I like how you focus on the legal aspect, because like I said, I focus more on the moral aspect of this bill, <laughs> which I kind of think it's interesting because I was watching an old TV show and it kind of ties into, you know, why I'm focused on the moral aspect, but there was a point in Western society when we thought about creating laws, we not only thought about, or just certain practices or just ideas, right? Just think about ideas, right? First, there's three questions that came with that idea. Is it ethical? Is it legal? And is it moral? And I think in today's society, and maybe you can argue against or for, but in today's society, when it comes to writing these bills, especially if you live in a state like my state, in Florida, where they're trying to pass this bill, um, the pro-lifers will focus more on the moral components of the argument versus the pro-choicer. They won't necessarily focus. Well, some of them do. Take it back. Some of them do try to make it into a moral issue, which I think their moral arguments are weak. But um, I think it's interesting, though, how our society has kind of gotten away from bringing in the moral aspect to these debates. What do you think? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. So if I heard you correctly, you're, you're saying that it's interesting that we've moved away from the moral aspects and we focused on the legal? Just in general, uh, especially when it comes to abortion topics, um, mostly everyone will try to focus on the legal aspect and shy away from the moral arguments, um, mm. unless you're like you're in a church setting or in a family setting kind of deal. Um, they don't like when you go to, to a debate stage, for example, most of the time they're not going to talk about the moral aspect of abortion. They're just going to focus more on the legal aspect, but maybe see something different, um, which you may call it. But I think the Florida bill by itself, let's say you did live in Florida, for example, um, would you be in support of this bill? Or if you're not comfortable saying your opinion, that's fine too, but um, <laughs> go ahead. No, I mean, so from a moral standpoint, I'm I would support it and I would be comfortable with it. Um, I think it doesn't surprise me at the same time though that we shifted to more of a talk at the legal level for a couple of reasons. Because number one, a lot of times there is a disagreement on what is the quote unquote moral approach to this, right? Because if your belief is that abortion is wrong because it is a life. And someone else says it's not a life. You have a fundamental disagreement on the terms of the debate, right? So it, it becomes more a question of where is government overstepping in terms of regulation? Where is it imposing an undue burden? Where are we allowed to do this per the constitution or per the states, you know, wh whatever level you're looking at it at. And so I think that that is why, in my opinion, why we've shifted towards more of a legal stance, because the question is less about, is this something that is a good to, to do versus is this something that is legal to do? Because both sides agree that abortion or the banning of abortion is a quote unquote moral good. They just have different standards. And this is kind of think of think of your morals or your values as the lens through which you view this particular circumstance. So anyone who or I won't say anyone probably the majority of people who are saying that abortion is wrong and they're approaching it from a moral sense believe that A, it's a human life, B, life was created, 
and therefore C, life is sacred and should be protected. All right, so that that is their their value through which they view this topic, the morals right. through which they view it. If you are pro-choice, you probably approach this from more of the perspective of bodily autonomy, women's rights, right? And so you would argue in that instance that this, you may say that it is not a life because it, it hasn't been born or it's not far enough along or there's, it's a very nuanced topic. So it's difficult to to paint with broad generalizations, but for one reason or another, they might say that it's it's not a life. So there's a fundamental disagreement on that because if, if it is a life, life is sacred, um, then you're going to believe that it shouldn't be killed. The other one says that it's not even a life. So it's a clump of cells, doesn't matter. The other approach that might happen there if they're in favor of it is they might say that, okay, let's say that we agree. It is a life. The other one says, what is the higher power here, right? So the if I was to rank the rights of the unborn life versus the rights and life of the mother. So now they have to decide which one they're going to emphasize. And if they're pro-abortion, they're probably at that instance going to say that the individual autonomy rights of the mother in that instance are going to take precedent. They supersede the rights of either the clump of cells or even if they go so far as to acknowledge that it is the life, the rights of the child. So when there's that much of a disagreement, I think we've just reached this point of we're entrenched in our camps. You are what you are. We can probably guess based off of the party you affiliate with. Maybe there's some nuanced divergence. We're going to talk about where do we have the ability to regulate. And I think that kind of, so for example, the Florida law, I don't know this for certain, but I would guess that it's some form of a compromise because they're allowing there to be up to a certain point. They say, that's fine. You know, maybe we have not... Maybe we have a disagreement on when life begins. Does it begin at conception? Does it begin at heartbeat? Does it begin when it's born? Like, where is that line? When we set that line, then we have to craft legislation around it. So if we believe that life begins at conception, you're probably going to be in favor of no abortion period. If you believe life begins at birth, you're probably open up to the point of the child being born. If you believe that it's set at the time that you can hear a heartbeat, you're probably more around like the eight, 10 week support if you're in support of banning abortion. So when we have the legislation, they have to balance both sides because, you know, Florida's not doing something that's as extreme as say no abortion whatsoever. And they're not going to be as liberal as say, you know, up till the point that the child is born. So they need a standard for that. And I think that they've probably skipped over the moral discussion either because a, it doesn't get to their legislation or B, they are on separate terms from the two sides. Like they, they, they can't agree on the actual terms of say life conception, et cetera. Well, I would kind of think though, too, like you kind of have to bring up the moral aspect when you're bringing up the legal aspect, because if you don't bring up the moral aspect, like then you can't really answer like, what's the government's role in this? Is it to protect life? If you think that is morally, if you morally think that it's murder, for example, then you're going to want the government to protect that individual from that harm. If you don't believe it's a life or you believe it's a clump of cells, at least that's at that point, then you'll make the moral argument that the government has the uh, responsibility to protect the woman's right of bodily autonomy for their uh, lingo per se. Um, so I think you still kind of, even when you bring up the legal aspect, you kind of have to bring the moral aspect into the debate. You know what I'm saying? 
Oh, no, and I, and I agree. In fact, you know, my perspectives on where the legal aspects should come into play stem absolutely from my morals. So, for example, I believe that at that point, it is a life. And so it's, it is not a potential life. It is a life with potential. And because I believe that it is a human being at that time, then I also believe that the government has an obligation to protect the rights of its citizens. And that includes citizens who have not been born yet. So that is where the legal aspect, in this case, the government has a duty to protect someone from, say, murder, because in that instance, I, if, if I believe it's a life, then to kill it, by definition, it has to be murder, right? So then the government implementation comes in with, you can't kill an unborn child if it's going to be murder any more than you can kill someone else. So, no, you're right. The The legal implementation stems from the moral application. I mean, if you think about it, though, too, um, that's how we ended slavery, for example, right? Like, there was a moral push, moral argument stating that this group of people, the black community in particular, it was not morally right to view them as three-fifths of a person, for example. Therefore, we must rewrite the Constitution or amend the Constitution, excuse me, to reflect this moral belief. And same thing, we could, same thing happened to the civil rights era where we had to get rid of the Jim Crow laws because there was a moral argument that was being made that these laws uh, were being on, were racially, to kind of go back to race, and not to give uh, the critical race theories any ammo and everything like that and say, aha, I got you to say it, but there were races that there were laws at that time. Jim Crow laws were designated, you know, to disproportionately hold a certain group down per se, but people had to make a moral argument to make the government realize that the government had a responsibility to those people in particular to make sure they weren't being discriminated against. And I think definitely when it comes to abortion, um, I wish personally people would more people would actually bring that out more, especially on the pro-choice side. And when they try to make it into a moral argument, it's pretty interesting to watch <laughs> from for my personal uh, thoughts on that. But I'm pretty happy that this is going to, you know, Florida is becoming a darker shade of red in particular. So I don't think this is going to be much of an issue when it comes to election. Um, I don't really think abortion is as big of an well, take it back. It's definitely a big issue. <laughs> but for example, like the election in Virginia, for example, everyone thought abortion is going to be like a hot button issue. And that's one of the Democrats talking points as far as why they shouldn't vote Republican in that election. Turned out they're really wrong and way off that abortion is a concern of the people. And I think same thing with Florida. I think, uh, you know, some proponents of some liberals or excuse me, leftists, I should say, uh, they think this is going to hurt Republicans in the future elections and everything like that. But I think the general population, for the most part, that silent majority, they can probably get behind like 15 weeks, like 15 weeks is plenty of time uh, to figure out if you want to keep that life as a compromise, I guess. And I say that loosely because I don't like the, I personally would have compromised on that issue, but you know, 
this is a diverse, rich and diverse country. <laughs> well, and I think the 15 week mark is less, well, I don't know. <laughs> it's less controversial on the one hand than say the eight week bill that was proposed by Texas, because a lot of the arguments against the Texas one was, well, you might not even realize you're pregnant by that point, uh, was kind of the, the more popular argument I heard. If you've doubled that, you know, now, now you're looking at almost four months, you know, three-ish and, you know, and some change. So I think that they're, they're doing, it works as almost a rebuttal, but again, you're going to be entrenched on one side or the other because it's tied to your values. And this, this is why abortion is such a hot topic issue because it does, like you mentioned, stem from your values. And the values are kind of the most important part of the self-concept that we hold, right? Because they are the things that we use as the foundation. A lot of what you do is going to be based off of morals. You don't even have to be a religious person for this to take place. You you might choose to do or not do something because it makes you feel better or worse to do it. Well, where does that come from? Well, that comes from what you personally believe is the right thing to do. Where does the right thing to do come from? It comes from your sense of morals, right and wrong. And so when this is so innately attached to that, that's why it's such a hot topic issue because people are so entrenched in the beliefs and it's tied to the morals. I think that makes it really difficult to even have these debates at, say, a legislative level because you know it's, it's pretty much whoever has the number of votes that they need to get what they want through. Because there's right. not going to be a lot of a lot of compromise or discussion, and maybe they do this to be less controversial. But I don't know. Oh, it's oh, I am curious to see though. Like, let's say the Supreme Court does not favor the Mississippi law, which I think they'll find favor with the Mississippi abortion law. But I wonder if this will deter the Florida legislators if that turned out to be the case, where the Supreme Court said like, "Yeah, you can't do this. This is unconstitutional." Um, I definitely think it really depends on the, those Supreme Court cases where, such as, for example, the Roe v. Wade is being challenged, not in the sense like if it gets overturned, all 50 states' abortion is illegal now. It just gives states the power again to make their own abortion laws. Um, but also, if it were to not be in favor or anything like that, it definitely would hinder or hurt the pro-life movement where the pro-lifers such as myself we want abortion to be completely abolished and again that's that gets into my own personal beliefs now but um you know sometimes uh, like you said it really depends on who's in power with these uh, legislators if you if the majority happens to be pro-choicers then they're going to pass laws that benefit their beliefs or then their values and vice versa and Unfortunately, sometimes that can uh, it can rub people the wrong way, and definitely rub the wrong way. What's what's going on in Canada in particular with these vaccine mandates and such? So let's get into that. I think that's a good segue uh, for what's going on in Canada. To end on a more optimistic note, I would like to think anyway. At least this gives me a sense of optimism. What's going on in Canada? our neighboring country let's set the scene for this revolt basically from the canadian people because the whole country's a revolt at least from what i see all right so the canadian establishment has been in lockstep with any sort of with 
any sort of mandate from vaccines to lockdowns. And yes, lockdowns is still in their vocabulary. Uh, now, just like here in the United States, they have their own territories and they have their own little policies, but all of them have some sort of lockdown mandate and some territories have a curfew. One of them has a curfew of 10 p.m. where everyone has to be back inside their house at that point. Uh, their leaders haven't had really any debate over these mandates, thus making them feel comfortable to pass every any COVID measure, which really they haven't really passed any COVID measures, kind of like what's been going on here, uh, at least during the early part of Biden's administration as far as um, just letting one department legislate laws without actually going through the process in particular. But that's just to point out that there's just really no debate. Like I said, everyone's pretty much, at least the ruling class has been in lockstep. Uh, the, but this time, though, uh, we had a situation where the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, Trudeau, did I pronounce it right? Help me out here. <laughs> I think it's Trudeau. Trudeau, I'm, okay. I'm not sure. Okay, so they made a, so there was a vaccine mandate for these truckers. Uh, basically, the mandate was for anyone who is unvaccinated crossing the U.S. Canadian border. Uh, they had to be quarantined for two weeks once they returned home. And where does this led this? Where are we at now? The protest has pretty much garnered grassroots, true grassroots support. That even before their GoFundMe page was suspended, they raised enough money, the truckers, to remain at the national parliament for the next two years. That's right. They could just leave their trucks at the nation's capital, pressing the gas pedal, no pun intended, or pun intended, depends on if you want it to be a pun. But, um, but yeah, they press the gas pedal for, to their leaders for the next two years. And oh, by the way, there's approximately... 50,000 truckers in Canada who are participating in this protest. At Emerson, protests are taking up both lanes of Highway 75 as it approaches the port entry from your state, Pembina, North Dakota. Did I pronounce it right? Say it one more time. Pembina, North Dakota? I'm actually not sure. P-E-M-B-I-N-A. We'll go with sure. <laughs> you're from North Dakota. You're from North Dakota. You should know no, this. No, 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 no. I'm going to school in North Dakota, and Fargo is really the only area that I've been to. So hold on, back that up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's, anyways, we'll continue. Uh, protesters, though, are looping back to North into North Dakota. Excuse me, uh, Canada. They're clogging up the northbound lanes. Uh, it's over like 500 to 1,000 truckers are causing this obstruction while there's a full border closure over at Montana that reached uh, day four of its blockade as of February 2nd, the day before my birthday. People who drive in agricultural construction equipment have also joined protests at border crossing at the capital city of Ottawa, Ontario, where trucks have been blocking streets for several days per AG Week News. What's the response? What's the response from the government? Well, it couldn't be more obtuse. The prime minister has refused to meet with them. And went as far as to say to go into hiding once they arrived at the Capitol. Now, there are reports or rumors that he has tested positive for COVID, asymptomatic, which, you know, that's a little, it's a little convenient, but I digress. 
he did a press conference in his hiding place and he called these protesters kind of boils down to what we've talked about a lot today. Uh, it's now a racist. Now it's a racist thing to do what they're doing. And they, and he said that they won't be intimidated by these protests. He has called it disgusting, etc. The Canadian Trucking Alliance issued a statement on January 22nd by stating that they do not support and strongly disapproves of any protests on public roadways, highways, and bridges. Uh, CTA, or the Canadian Trucking Alliance, believes such actions, especially those that interfere with public safety, are not how disagreements with government policy should be expressed. Apparently, Canadian truck drivers have a 90% vaccination rate, yet we're seeing this protest, this massive revolt. Uh, why does this matter to the United States? Well, 75% of our trade with Canada is through trucks. That's how we get our. That's how we do our trade. Is through driving. Uh, this this affects our supply chain, which we're, we've already been dealing with the global supply chain issues. So this just kind of compounds the problems. Some areas worse than others, depending on where you live. That said, my initial reaction is: How out of touch can the ruling class be with the people? <laughs> In seriousness, the entire country has gotten behind this protest. There's a reason why they have enough funding to park their trucks right in front of the parliament for the next two years if they really wanted to. Uh, which, according to the prime minister, that still doesn't represent Canada, supposedly. If it weren't for independent media sources and con more conservative outlets, you'd think the press was a mouthpiece for their leaders instead of the people. And the race car. Oh, we can't go without the race car. Right? I said to you on this... I said this on your show, but and I said tonight that race has become a shield for any sense of accountability by our political leaders, more so at the left. It's become their own religion. That said, the protests in Canada show that there's some sense of liberty in the West, a rebellious spirit against authoritarian governments, which is inspiring other countries, including here in the United States, to have our own trucker convoys. Uh, also in Denmark and Australia, which there's some extreme lockdown measures that are transpiring as well, or extreme uh, policies as far as vaccination is concerned. It gives me hope, Ryan. It really does. <laughs> People are saying it's been two years on this panic COVID porn. It's time to move on. It's, it's time to get back to our lives. COVID is here to stay, which I know we, you and I have talked about before. That's pretty much the COVID is going to become or should be treated as the flu. Uh, it's time to adapt. We're not they're basically saying we're not giving up our freedoms anymore. Enough is enough. And again, that gives me optimism. And that's why I say uh, this last story should be a more positive story in that sense. If you are on the side of the people in particular. But I turn to you. You live in North Dakota. So I'm assuming. Well, I guess I assumed wrong. But you know. <laughs> I, you know now. <laughs> I was going to say you do. I, was, I assume you may know some stores or insiders that are going on uh, what I just said. But. What do you think overall? Well, I think first and foremost, now that you've mentioned COVID, we're going to get flagged because every time COVID pops up on something, you get that little stupid thing along the bottom of your Instagram or whatever that says, see here for COVID information. Yes, all the time. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you say. It just, it, it, it's those, those words that I guess flag it. I don't know. It's a trigger word. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's going to get banned. It just means that, you know don't put anything at the bottom of the image for it because it gets covered up by their little warning. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. <laughs> All right. In seriousness though, 
I really thought the left was all about the working class rising up. I mean, it's pretty inconsistent to be all about the working class rising up, taking what's theirs, standing up for their rights, rising above their social class, doing better until it goes against what they want to be the mainstream narrative. I mean, that that's that's where we're at. Truckers are catching heat now because they're no longer going along with what they're supposed to be going along with. And I think it's also, checking off the boxes. <laughs> it's also important to remember though, that we're not talking about the same COVID that we had in 2020. We're talking about Omicron. So I've been very tailored in my strategies for that. I've, I've recommended, right? So like I, when, when we were in 2020 and then 2021, I, I wasn't just like, hey, it's just over. Right. But like the data actually show now that that is the case. Like we are far more infectious and far less deadly now, you know, now uh, there was people who was saying, you know, the first round of COVID was just like the flu, which wasn't, wasn't, was it, it was, it was more deadly for sure. But, but now we're getting to the point now that the virus has evolved to where this particular strain absolutely is not as deadly. And they're still coming out with the idea that you need to, they're talking about a fourth vaccine now. They're talking about lowering the age. You know, we need the five and six-year-olds who actually, according to studies, have higher natural immunity to COVID. Correct. And in New York right vaccinated. now, I was going to say, and New York right now, which I've shared with you, they're trying to push as young as two months old to get the yep. vaccine, which is crazy. And, and part is... Whenever I've talked about these things, I talk about the cost-benefit analysis. You have to weigh what are the risks versus what are the rewards. And when it came, you know, I, I got vaccinated. I got the two doses of Pfizer because where it was at, it was at the time, the data showed that it was reducing the hospitalization if you were to get it. It also reduced the transmissibility of that particular virus. But now with the virus that we have, the strain that we have, it's not protecting against it. So then I'm going to ask, when we are seeing studies with a significant number of people who are having confounding factors again, right? They're having complications, uh, blood clots and things like that because of the third test or because of the third shot, rather, the booster shot. Um, it's, it's not a lot, a lot, but but it's enough that for me, if the third shot doesn't reduce transmissibility and it doesn't reduce my hospitalization rate, I'm already about as low as I can go, especially in my factor. Why are you recommending to a 27-year-old that they get the booster? Like, you're not actually going with the data at that point. And that's where people are inconsistently attacking the truckers here now. Because they're, they're approaching it as though we're still in the first strain of COVID when that's not the case. They're approaching I think it's it, all... Go ahead. I was going to say they're approaching it as though we still need the lockdowns, which, <laughs> LOL, recent reports... <laughs> From CNN, I think it was, showed that the lockdowns actually didn't do, they didn't reduce it by by any more than like 1%, um, and they devastated the economy. Now, I'm not faulting them for that decision because it was far more deadly, and we did what we could. Hindsight's 2020, literally, in this case. Right. But <laughs> Pun intended there. But you can't tell me that with all... The actual science and data in hand now, you're still going to recommend lockdowns. You're still going to say the truckers are risking disease and affecting the communities and they hate the elderly. Like all of this nonsense, you know, talk about not progressing with the science, not supporting the working class. That's the left right now. 
Like I said, they pretty much, especially the press in particular, they pretty much become a mouthpiece for the ruling class, which at one point the press used to pride themselves in being the mouthpiece of the people, which is just bizarre to see like the flip. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And well, it's, I would also say real quick before, sorry, but before, no, I would no. also say, I would also say though too, like truck drivers, really? COVID vaccine mandate? Like, that's probably the most isolated job, unless yeah. there's another job you could think of, like work from home in particular, by yourself, a single man like me, for example, with a dog. Like, it's the most isolated job out there. Like, there is no reason why you need to get a vaccine for that job. It's crazy because the mayor of Ottawa said that it is the truckers destroying the economy. He has put them in lockdown for two years. The the mayor and then the prime minister, so Trudeau, and I, I don't remember the mayor of Ottawa's name, but like they have passed these policies. Like the United States, outside of like California, has been very lax in comparison to Canada. And you can think that that's better or worse. That's not the point here. <laughs> the point the point is that regardless of whether or not you think it was necessary for the preservation of human life, it is indisputable that it has a negative effect on the economy. And now they're saying, huh, it's enough. The truckers, you're now interfering with businesses, blah, blah, blah. Like The government set up these rules and regulations that crippled the economy. And now they're saying that after, what, two weeks, not even two weeks of the truckers being there, they're the problem. And, you know, we're seeing the way that the United States media is covering this. You know, they're like, oh, it's unlawful. It's unlawful assembly. You know, we might have mostly fiery or mostly peaceful, fiery protests, somewhat fiery protests where there's extensive damages, something like what $4 billion worth of damages done over the course of the summer, a few months. With Antifa and, and Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and that, and again, that's not to say that all of the protests were violent. Not all of the protests were riots, but even the ones that were riots were covered by the media as mostly peaceful, slightly fiery, but then we have 100% on part of the truckers peaceful. Because fun fact, uh, to my understanding, it was actually in their contracts, they could only be peaceful. And there have actually been infiltrating government operatives who have been the ones trying to incite violence. Like, it's it's fascinating to see some of the information from these truckers that is not... I've seen more on TikTok than I have on the news. Uh, straight, li <laughs> straight live feed from the people it's it's you know that that hasn't been taken down yet <laughs> ironically even though their facebook page has but you know the government is setting these regulations and then they're blaming the people and that's mirrored in the united states you know joe biden saying we can only get back to normal when everybody's vaccinated when when in the history of science has the people who don't take the vaccination been the ones harming the people who have taken the vaccination? Like it is, it is an individual application. And now we're seeing that the data says that it's not stopping transmissibility. The vaccinated, the unvaccinated are spreading it. Like at this point, it's endemic. Like the, the health community is now coming out and saying, this is here to stay. And some people are recommending that that means forever lockdowns. And some people are saying it's time to get on with their lives. And Canada is one of the people who's saying it's time for perpetual lockdowns. It's unacceptable. Uh, you are the fringe minority with unacceptable views. That's a direct quote from Trudeau uh, that he said that it's it's unacceptable that these people would dare to be the fascists who are hurting our <laughs> beloved community. Like that's basically what he's saying. Last part was paraphrasing, but you get my point. And I would also though say 
I mean, I don't think it's a minority. I think the Canadian people have had enough. It's just the ruling class in particular has been in lockstep for with these lockdowns in particular that the truck drivers just so happens to be giving other people in their country courage to start speaking out against this these mandates and lockdowns because like you said it's been two years and compared to california which you know i guess better of the worst right <laughs> uh <laughs> well, you the know of the evil <laughs> you know what's funny is they called in the tow trucks to remove the illegally soliciting or you know whatever you're not going to move a freaking big ass truck like that (laughs) well you've got stuff that's big enough to tow it but here's what's hilarious when the city officials called the towing trucks every towing truck company that they contacted said our people are out sick with covid we're not going to be able to help you it was a beautiful underhanded (laughs) like stick it to the man f you like if you're going to disappear because of covid guess what (laughs) <laughs> We're not going to say we support this, but yeah, we've all our workers are sick. Like if you are going to turn your back on the people and because of COVID, air quote, then so do we. We're also sick of COVID. So um, good luck Poetic with your justice. situation. <laughs> Poetic justice. Basically. Love to see uh, it. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, it, but like I said, though, like seeing this in particular for me gives me optimism that yep. – that sense of rebellion against authoritarian policies and regimes still exists in the West. And for a while, I was even concerned that we were kind of moving away. Uh, Cause you were talking about earlier, especially like it could definitely, things can definitely turn around. It's just a matter of people, are people willing to? And I think just like little bits and pieces here and there, like the whole leftist Marxist, utopia is starting to finally this narrative of fictional world they're trying to create the cracks are finally starting to come through it's start to fall apart their covid narrative is starting to fall apart uh even the racist narrative is starting to fall apart because despite the comments and accusation of racism towards the about these truck drivers people are not buying into that anymore they're not they're realizing and seeing beyond they're seeing the bigger picture of what's going on. They're not buying into the, oh, yeah, these truck drivers are a bunch of white supremacists that are trying to hurt our people, and they don't represent the Canadian people in particular. When in reality, they're trying to tell the Canadian government, like, actually, you're the one who's out of touch with reality right now. We are actually are, we're tired of this. And I kind of made an article and an episode basically stating that the unvaccinated or anyone who questions the COVID narratives out there are the new scapegoats in society. And I mean, I think it's justified to kind of go back to what you were saying earlier, as far as it's not the government's responsibility or it's not the government's fault that the, they're having economic issues. It's not the fact that they impose these lockdowns to where businesses can't function anymore without government dependency which even then they can only go that far uh, rely on a government paycheck before the government runs out of money themselves but these accusations are just really a a way to distract people from who's really responsible for these problems that they're having especially economic woos which in the end it's not the people who are protesting these lockdowns 
it's the people who imposed these mandates and lockdowns in particular, especially towards those who, like the truck drivers, who didn't, who could not uh, just stay at home and quarantine for two weeks when the COVID pandemic first came about in 2020. They were considered essential workers, so they had to go out there and work. And by opposing these mandates and saying these things, they've literally slapped their faces across their face and said, yeah, thanks for nothing, basically. You're, because you're no longer complying with what we're saying, you're now the bad guy. Uh, F you for everything you've done. Like you said to what you said a moment ago, as far as how the left used to be, like the champion for the people in particular. I kind of like to think of it now. I think if, let's say, we a liberal from, let's say, the 50s and a conservative from the 50s, like they went on a time machine, they came to our times today, I think they'd be shocked by how the roles have flipped, basically. It almost seems like the right has become what the left used to be, classical liberalism, right? Where we want, you know, free speech. We want uh, people to be judged based on merit, not by the color of their skin. Uh, we want people to be able to uh, live their livelihoods, basically, without government uh, coming in and creeping in and telling them what to do. You know what I'm saying? So, Yeah, and I mean, the Overton window has shifted now to the left to kind of go along with what you were saying there. Like, we're, we're now seeing that people who are not buying into the minority opinions of the far left are being ostracized to being left by their own party. That goes from politicians uh, down to voters. We're seeing more like recent polls are showing now that very few Democrats are actually now supporting, like it's less than, it's less than 50. I think it's might even be less than 40% are now supporting some of the more radical ideas in general based off of their polls. And a lot of them are shifting now towards independent or a lot of the independents are starting to shift now uh, towards more of the conservative views because we've now seen Joe Biden had one job. Don't go crazy. Like he was put into office to do nothing. Moderate. Like he, was there, he was there to be moderate. And instead he decided to try and push. He wanted to make a name for himself. He wanted to be LBJ. He wanted to be FDR. He wanted to shove through uh, all of these reforms, reform the filibuster, reform the Senate, reform uh, everything with the Supreme Court, reform the entire economic structure, reform the way that we look at and measure poverty and outcome and, and everything. And there's a massive overcorrection to that now. And you're seeing a lot more handholding between uh, moderate liberals, classical liberals, anyone who is not fully on board with kind of that more out left agenda. They're seeing that there's a lot more in common. And when you couple that with what we talked about with cancel culture, I might disagree with you, but I'm going to support your your ability to say these things. So we share that value in common now. Like if you're not in favor of cancel culture, align yourself with the more conservative people because you know if you're going to pick a quote unquote crazy one that at least gives you a platform is going to be the way people are going. <laughs> We're going to see that shifting because we need to be applying these standards consistently. And from where I'm sitting, the ones who are doing that are the moderates, and even the people who are on the right. 
I would like to quote Ronald Reagan here to close at least my, what I have to say out, but what we're just talking about the last, you know, few minutes and everything like that really goes in with Ronald Reagan's quote of, I didn't leave the Democrat party. The Democrat party left me. And I think that's a lot of cases of people. uh, They're not necessarily uh, going to the more conservative arguments because they necessarily believe in the conservative arguments as much as the, leftist arguments have gotten so out of whack (laughs) that they're saying well yeah we're not going yeah we're drawing the line here are you guys have they're leaving liberalism didn't leave them it left or excuse me they didn't leave liberalism but uh liberalism left them so at least uh what the marxists have taken it i'm not going to call them leftists anymore i think they're just plain out marxist but that's just me though all right, that's my show. All right, I can say whatever I want. And I guess now if you ever want to come on this show and speak without any filters, you have a platform now. <laughs> <laughs> you got any last thoughts, my friend? Yeah, I think that it's important to note that the way history is unfolding before us right now, so our present, it's showing that liberals and moderates have more in common with their ideals than they're going to have with the Marxist leftist opinions. So for example, if you are a person who believes that the working class should rise up, so like even that portion of the leftist ideology, right? The Marxism, like, you know, power to the people. Look at what's going on right now. Who is supporting that? The difference is in the execution. The further left you go, the more likely you are to say that this needs to be subsidized by the government versus the right right now and the moderates are supporting the rising up of the working class and taking back what's theirs because it's based off of individual liberties. If you value individual liberties, if you value that support, you're going to be aligning a lot more with the right. I'm not saying you have to vote that way, but I am saying the more we shift this way, the more likely we are to see a, a, a union, a handholding between those who are moderates and those who are to the right than those who are aiming for things like cancel culture. Um, we support the working class until they go up against the narrative that we want. Right. So pay attention. Don't and put yourself in a party just because they claim to support you. Look at what they're actually doing because right now they're not. Yes, and I'll end with this quote. Don't listen to what they say or don't watch with what they say. Watch what they do. Action always speaks louder than words. Always. All right, Ryan, thanks again again for coming on this show, man. It's been fun. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Yeah, all right, ladies and gentlemen, with that said, I'll be back after this short break to close things out. My friend Ryan, you can catch him with Between the Liars. They do a live stream on Saturdays, correct? And That's correct. Then they have the audio version come out on Mondays. Right? Yep. And you can find it on Spotify, Apple, everywhere else. All right. And if you want to hear my opinions about the one crossover I did with them, with the voting rights, it's also on there as well. With that said, we'll be back after this short break. All right. If you made it this far, congratulations. You have my respect, my condolences, and my sympathy. This is a bit of a long one, but uh, thank you for joining us. If you want more partisan content like this, check out Ken's show, Taboo Topic. He does two shows weekly, Week in Review, which is what I participated in today, and Hot Seat. You can also follow him on his Instagram, Kenjin underscore Express. 
And remember, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, and Google Podcasts. Follow our social medias to stay updated. And if you enjoy this show, give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. We'll catch you back here next week. Goodbye for now. 